Wah, wah. Remember the price is right. Bum, 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 See, you come over. There's guys on first and second and nobody out. That's right. We sit down. And what happens after you arrive? One, two, three, barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> they could not oh, get the tying run God. across. J.P. Crawford nearly oh. lays down what was supposed to be a sacrifice, but it looks like it might be a base hit because it's just hugging the line. Yep. I'm still not sure that ball ever went foul. Yeah, I don't think it did. I was watching it with you. I, I saw the replay. I don't see that ball coming off the line no. when the guy grabs it. I don't either. Second and third, Julio misses the slider by... <laughs> by how much? Just barely misses it, you're oh, saying? No, no, oh, no, the no, opposite. No. Okay. Let's put it this way. The slider was in 206, <laughs> right. and his bat was in 360. <laughs> gotcha. Let's put it that way. Yeah, he wasn't even close. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's... That... They had a chance. They had a chance to sweep. That's what makes heroes. Like, you know, Julio, he's our guy. We paid him. Like, yeah. you got to get that hit. Well... That's what they do. Big nah. players make big plays in big games. Oh. Not, not, and then after, day. and after the final out, the entire place erupts oh. with with uh, joy because it's all Blue Jays fans. That's right, huge pop <laughs> at the end, huge. Oh. and just before that, as you were walking through the door, mm -hmm. as I was watching the Mariners bat in the uh, bottom half of the ninth against the Blue Jays, I was also on my computer watching Deion Sanders, your favorite guy, the guy that you think is going to restore prominence to the Colorado football program. Was it ever prominent? I guess it was. Sure. With sure. Uh, Darian Hagan. And sure. Eric Bieniemy. McCartney. Was he the oh, coach? I think Paul was. McCartney. Was That's he ever the right. coach? Paul McCartney. And Phil McCartney. Your buddy Neuheisel took over at There one is point. a video online. Something is wrong with this, and you're going to say, this is you being old, Mitch. This is a get-off-my-lawn moment. Okay. But there's something wrong when I'm watching a video of Deion Sanders sitting in the passenger seat of a new $200,000 Mercedes being driven by his quarterback son that he got with NIL money. Wait, his quarterback's His quarterback son is driving is it a Maybach? Do you know that? Maybach is Maybach. Yes. Okay, a Mercedes Maybach sedan oh, with yeah. a price tag of $200,000 that he got with his 1.3 million NIL money that he got once he transferred to Colorado to play for his dad. Yeah. That's the base model, by the way. 200000 I mean. <laughs> and the video is of Deion Sanders in the passenger seat going, hey, it wasn't like this when I was in college. Yeah, it is a little and bizarre. His son's, and his son's name is Shadur or Shadur mm -hmm. Sanders. I don't even know that he's supposed to be all that good. It's not like it's Arch Manning or somebody like that. I don't think you have to be good to get paid. Kim Kardashian's a four-time billionaire. <laughs> She's to, good. You don't have to be talented or good, good to get paid in this world. You don't. By the way, you want the Maybach. You want to sit in the, the back Maybach. seat. Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about. You don't that. want to sit in the front passenger. Have you seen the back seat? No, I have no idea. They're like first-class airplane seats. They recline all the way back. And this is like a sophomore in college yeah. and, who just bought himself a new Maybach. Yes. at two hundred grand with his dad sitting. Okay, nil money's great, <laughs> but come on. <laughs> It says, I'm going to tell you, it says Shadur's pricey new vehicle comes after a report that his promotional deals are with Mercedes-Benz, Gatorade, Tom Brady's clothing brand, and Beats by Dre, among other businesses, which have netted him so far an NIL value of $1.3 million, and he hasn't thrown a pass. This is a guy who was playing at Jackson State, I think, last year. Yeah. 
He hasn't thrown a pass for Colorado. <laughs> and he's driving in a new $200,000 Mercedes. Yeah. What a country, Yakov What Smirnoff. a country is right. Oh Nary a pass to have been thrown. And he's driving around in that thing. I, for one, don't think they're going to be as good as you think, but we're going to see. I don't know about this year. I think he's going to be oh, a no, problem for be other teams. You said this year. <laughs> He'll be a problem for the Pac-12 other teams nah. at some point. You don't think so ever? I think, I think Maybe. give him two or three years, I think Maybe. He's, Episode 247, have we started yet? You'll be happy to know that one of the additions to that car you can add is a built-in refrigerator in the back in between the two seats. Do you so. think Shadur has a built-in refrigerator? <laughs> well, the they started around 195. I don't know if he got the refrigerator, if it's only 200,000. But yeah, maybe he did. Those things are ridiculous. Episode 247 oh. is available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe and rate us, please, on Apple. I host several weekly short-form shows for all of our Mitch Unfiltered patrons. It's time, ladies and gentlemen, that you support the show. Five bucks a month. Become a Mitch Unfiltered patron. Just go to MitchUnfiltered.com for $5 a month, and you'll hear the shows with Danny O'Neill and Slick Hawk and the, the Mariners No Table with Jason Churchill and Joey Doyle. We do three of them, four of them each week. Yep. They're about 25 to 30 minutes all you got to do, MitchUnfiltered.com, click, become a patron, five bucks a month. And if you can't afford it, if you truly can't afford the $5 a month, just email me at Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com. Like Frank and Fife did. Uh, I feel like Frank's Now, you and I before. haven't seen each other for two weeks. Oh, boy. Is that right? Correct. And why haven't we seen each other for two weeks? We were off last week. We were off last week. You yeah. were in... Well, I was supposed to be in Oregon. You didn't I, go? I didn't go. So we could have recorded? Yeah. You're not supposed to say that on the show. Yeah, but who am I to screw up your schedule? Did, you you, you never even wrote me that you, What happened? Well, it was like 5.30 on Saturday night, and I just decided to bag it. I was going to go down because I had to work Saturday. Yeah. So I was going to go down Saturday night. She was going to come back. We were like ships crossing in the night. Three but, weeks ago, you said to me, listen, yeah, Mitch, on July such and such a date, I'm going to be in Oregon. I can't do the show. Yeah. Just wanted a day off. Frank and Fife, Fife Washington writes, Mitch, is it my imagination, or do you take even more vacation with this podcast than you did at KJR? <laughs> now, I resent this. Yeah, because you know that's not possible. Nobody can have more vacation at KJR. You had more vacation. I said at KJR. You had more vacation. <laughs> I wasn't there. Yes, I did. I don't give a shit which the name of your station. It was all the same company. Yes. You had more. You and your... T-Man had more vacation than me, I think. I was asked when I first started. I, here's your choice, Scott, by Allison Hesse, our pal oh, Allison. I, I know what you're going to say. I told you this story, right? exactly what you're going to say. You can either have X amount of weeks yourself. Two, two weeks. Two and weeks. Take them when you, you want. want. Or just be off when T-Man gets off. 12 weeks. <laughs> what do you think I said? <laughs> God. The chances are. Weeks. Like, the percentages <laughs> say oh, that shit. he's going to take a, a vacation when you wanted to but, take one anyway, because he's got 12 weeks. As soon as the ratings book ended in December, we were out of there. What's the <laughs> hell? We're not doing this for nothing. Yeah. Okay. I resent Frank and Fife Washington. I really do. Yeah. We don't take that much vacation. First of all, all right. So last Monday, this is episode 247. It was supposed to be last Monday. And yes, we did not record for last Monday, partly because you were supposed to be in Oregon. Yeah. But the other reason I'll explain in a minute, but during the course of the week, I did all the other shows. Oh, yeah. I true. didn't take any week off. It wasn't I a took, week off. No, yes. I took the Monday show off. I, I did the Danny show, which was really good. I did the Slick Hawk show, which was really good. I did the Mariners No Table. Eh. Uh, I, I, did, I did all the shows. 
I didn't take the whole week off. If you were a patron, yeah, you got three shows. That's the first thing I want to say. Okay. The second thing I want to say is we don't take that many weeks off of the Monday show. I think I've gone through this before on the show. Maybe I haven't, so I'll do it now. Okay. We take one Monday off every month that has five Mondays in it. Every few months, a month comes along that ends up having five Mondays. My original deal with our sponsors, you know our sponsors, yep, love is they sponsor our show based on four shows per month. Mm -hmm. So what I do is when we get to a month like July that actually has five Mondays in it, we take one of the Mondays off and we only do four shows instead of doing five shows. Oh. And that comes out to be what? Three months a year? Are there five Mondays in a month? Well, the next one's in October. Okay, so there, there you, you go. go. And I probably won't even do that because that'll be football season. I typically don't take a Monday off. I don't think we take Mondays off typically during football season unless the Seahawks are out of it. So there, there's another reason. What are we talking about here? Yeah, it doesn't make We're sense. We're talking about three I don't know what Frank yeah. is was whining about. And even if I do sometimes not do the show, you you do it. We do it all the time. Right. The only reason I didn't do it last Monday is you said to me, I'm going to be in Oregon. And then I looked at the calendar and it said, it's Perfect. a five, it's a five Monday, July yep. anyway. So yep. I got to take one. I'm going to take one of the Mondays off. Give us a little break. So I made it coincide with the week that you actually were here and could have done the show. Yeah. I probably could have, but I didn't want to mess up your schedule. No, you probably, no, I wouldn't. You probably you had plans on that Monday. But, but that's the point. We've been doing this thing for almost, I think, five years. Yeah. I only take Mondays off it's true. when the month has five Mondays. This, this guy carries the Fakakta stuff to Florida, off. and you do it You do it from there if you have to. I do. I, that's what I'm saying, yeah. I do. I take the, I, wherever I go. That's right. I take the stuff with me. Yep. I do the Patreon. And even on the Mondays that we take off, like last week, I do the patron shows. So clearly, <laughs> Frank and Fife, if I go check, because yeah. I have his email, yeah. I can go check to see if his email is a patron show. If he's such a supporter of the show, I can't afford the five bucks a month to get the three shows when I'm out. I still do those three shows. For some reason, Frank and Fife sounds like somebody who's ripped us in the past. I don't know why. Maybe he's why? ripped me. We're not me. big in Fife. We're not well-liked in Fife. I, I thought we were. We have a problem with Fife. <laughs> that sounds like it, yes. Why have you not recommended Lincoln Lawyer to me? Oh, I don't know what that is. It's a TV show? You, the man who knows every streaming TV I show. I try. It's, I can't keep up. I, yes, you can. You're very good at keeping it's up. It's hard. Lincoln Lawyer. Of all the shows, you have not recommended the show on Netflix. I think it's Netflix. I don't know which Fakakta <laughs> streaming <laughs> yeah, service it's on. It's one of the ones we get. I think we get them all. Lincoln Lawyer. You never recommended to me Lincoln Lawyer. It's probably on a network like NBC or No, something. it's a Netflix <laughs> show, I said. It's, well, it's on Netflix. Is it a Netflix oh. original? Oh, I don't know. I can't answer that. Uh, Guy at the out. golf club says, what are you watching on streaming these days? And I said, well, Hotshot recommended this, this show that the first show, one kid kills another one on the street. He's spitting up blood. Oh, gurgling. gurgling. The other it. guy's giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth oh. while he's spitting. Yeah, that's the type of stuff that the, the Hotshot. He said, dude, just do me a favor, the guy says. <laughs> yeah, He's about 80 years old. He says, do me a favor, you and your wife, just watch Lincoln Lawyer, watch Lincoln Lawyer, and let me know if you don't like Lincoln Lawyer. Oh my God, it's from 2011. Is it really? Yeah, it is an, it's an original Netflix series. 
Is it really from 2011? It we're is. Watching so, an old. Yeah, welcome. What? I was in my 30s when they. Yeah, were? <laughs> you haven't watched Breaking Bad from 04. That, is it really? I didn't know that. I don't think my wife knows that either. Is it about Mick Haller, a defense yes. lawyer who Holler. works at oh, Haller works it's out not, of his? It's not like Pat Haller who we correct. used to work yes, with, though doctor. it's spelled the exact same way. Yeah, yeah. Mickey pronounces his name Haller. He works out of his Lincoln. He works out of his Lincoln. His car. He's a Lincoln lawyer. Okay, gotcha. And my wife and I watched the first episode, and then we we binge watched, and I think watched the whole day. Well, we haven't watched the whole damn thing yet, but we've been watching like one or two episodes every night since it was recommended. All right. Well, maybe I'll watch it. Yeah. Lincoln. No, no, you won't. I I, I kind of do need it's, something new though right now, so maybe I will. They only did one season, and then five shows oh. from the second season. So I I guess. I gather it wasn't particularly popular. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. No, but I like it. Okay. It's a show that you would think my wife and I would like because it's got no edge to it. It's got no gore to it. It's probably not for you because it's probably a little too G-rated or simple. And it's got simple plots. I don't have to think too much about what's going on. Yeah. It's good. Lincoln Lawyer. Lincoln if you ever lawyer. get a chance. Lincoln Lawyer. Who does it star? Well, I don't know who plays Mickey Holler. He's the he's the star. Okay. But Nev Campbell is in it. And it was one of those things that we haven't seen Nev Campbell. When was the last time you saw Nev Campbell do anything? Uh, the last Party Scream. Party of Five? The last Scream movie in 2022. Okay, I don't know the Scream movies. Yeah. But this character is in it. My wife's looking at me like, is that Nev Campbell? And I'm like, I don't know. It looks like Nev Campbell now. The internet is a fascinating thing. I could have probably looked it up on my phone to see if it was Nev Campbell. As it turns out, I think it is Nev Campbell. But we went about three or four episodes just like looking at each other saying, is that Nev Campbell? I don't know. I think it is Nev Campbell. No, it's not Nev Campbell. Yes, it is Nev Campbell. It is Nev Campbell. It's Nev Campbell. By the way, okay, so there's a movie in 2011 called Lincoln Lawyer. Oh, and they made a series in 2022 okay. called... Is that Matthew McConaughey? Matthew McConaughey's in okay. the movie. Okay. This is Manuel, Manuel Garcia Rulfo, or Rulfo, I don't know. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah, we so like it. So it is a new show. It, the show oh, came out in 22. You're saying the movie came out in The 11. movie, oh. I guess. I was all confused, but I'm on it now, yes. Oh, you're, you're backstepping now. You're backtracking. Well, the movie was 2011. Well, that's not what I was talking about. Now, was I talking about a movie or was I talking about The Lincoln Lawyer? It's hard to tell with you with what you're watching these days. Does it say there, whatever you're looking up there, that it's canceled? Is it done? Um, Or is it maybe just hasn't released the new shows yet? It's it's unclear, but I will dig into that for you. Yes. Are you going to go back to the the Cranston or no? Are you out? I'm thinking oh, about trying episodes two, three, and four. I'm trying. Alone? I don't, th- I don't think Sharon's coming along with me. Okay. No, after what she saw the first show. I think oh. she's done. All right. I think she's done. Fair anyway, enough. guess on this episode 247. I got a name out of the past for you. Really? Yes. Okay. Guess segment number one. You're going to look at me and say, man, I haven't heard his name or heard from him in years. Okay. He was the second overall draft choice. In the 1993 NFL draft, out of Notre Dame, he was supposed to be the next Joe Montana. That's right. It didn't quite work out that way. And I haven't heard from him in so long. I just decided it might just work if I search for and find none other than Rick Meyer. Wow. Segment number one, my 20 minutes. 25 minutes with Rick Meyer, and I think maybe not a home run, but a good, <laughs> maybe a good double in a gap. Is there a, a reason we uh, Rick Meyer was on the mind? You said I got to reach out to him. 
so funny that you ask me that because I was trying to think the other day what made me think of Rick Meyer, and I think it was the throwback jerseys that they're going to oh that they're going to wear this year. Okay. I think I saw a story about the throwback jerseys. For some reason, my mind flashed back to Rick Meyer, and I thought if he were willing to have now, how old would you say Rick Meyer was? Well, in, in 1993, yeah, mm. you can do the math on that. Yeah. Right, seven and 52? 30. He's probably in his 50s now. 52, 53, yeah. yeah. Close, if he's not. I thought, you know, if he would be willing to open up and have a candid conversation, I mean, think about this guy. He played 12 years in the NFL, Yeah, played for a lot of different teams, made a good chunk of change for whatever that was back in the day, mm -hmm. but he was supposed to be right. the thing. So... Is he proud? Does he look back at his 12 years as something that he holds on to, near and dear to his heart? Is there some does unfulfillment he, going on does in Does he look back to it as falling short of yeah. everybody's expectations? Is there bitterness? Is there, I just thought maybe he'd be willing hmm. at age 50 or 51 or whatever he is to open up, and guess what? He was. Really? Yeah, I he, think... Good. I don't want to oversell it, but I think those 20 minutes with Rick Meyer... If you're a Seahawks fan, or if you're not a Seahawks fan, or you just remember the name, he wore number three before somebody else wore number three. Oh, that's right, yeah. He was the co-rookie of the year. He was, yes. His first year right out of college. My favorite trivia question, after researching him, who was he co-rookie of the year with? In 93. And not oh. co-offensive rookie of the year in 1993. Who with? I'll never get it. I'll give you an unbelievable hint. <laughs> okay. He was co-rookie of the year with his college teammate. Oh, uh, not Tim Brown. No, not Tim Brown Tim was Brown. 87. I 87. Think, yeah. uh, his co-offensive rookie of the he year. He was co-offensive rookie of the year in the NFL with his Notre Dame teammate. Not Bettis? Yes. Oh, okay. No, Bettis the is bus. that old. All right, I love the bus. Jerome Bettis wow. and Rick Meyer were co-rookies of the year, I believe, in 1993. Which one would you have rather had? <clears throat> Let's not bang on <laughs> know, my guest. Look, he's a Seahawk. I'll always love him. But he's 53, by the way. I looked it up. So, yeah, 53. Do you remember being a kid or not being a, such a kid? I guess 93, you weren't that that young, were you? Oh, calm down. I mean, you know, I was 19. I was All right, 19. Um, no, I just remember thinking, well, we got the quarterback position filled for 10 years at least. So excited. Yeah. We got our guy. Because before that, it was like Kelly Stoffer and... These all just Mark McGuire's brother, Dan, I think his name. What all these core. I'm like, finally, we got our guy, the number two pick. We're good for a decade. Do you remember that it was, it was who the two guys were? You remember who the two guys were, right? What two guys? The numbers one and number two that year. Oh, I don't remember who went number one in 93. They oh, were, they the were, bus, I guess. No, no. they were going to go one and two. They're two quarterbacks. One played at Washington state and oh. one played at Notre Dame. Still doesn't ring a bell. Washington Both are in State? the wine business. One guy's name is Drew Bledsoe, and the oh, other yeah, guy's Bledsoe, name is right. Rick Meyer. I don't think of Bledsoe as being that what old, is, but I what guess What is wrong is. with you? I would have thought you'd know that. Of all the you shit know that all I know. This, you, you, you came up with Jerome Bettis after a second guess. You can't even come up with Drew Bledsoe. Yeah, that's, uh, I spotted you Washington State, no for kidding. God's sakes. Remember they were one and two, Yeah, and there was some question of which guy was going to be one, which guy was going to be two, and I believe if I'm not wrong... I wasn't around in those days, at least here. I believe that Seattle played New England in that 92-93 season 
and Seattle won the game, giving New England the one and Seattle two. I'm almost oh sure that those two teams played to decide who was going to be one and who was going to be two. And Bill Parcells was at New England. Yeah. And Tom Flores. Oh, yeah, Hall of Famer. Was here in Seattle. Yeah. And the rest, as they say, is history. And then in 98, the Chargers said, you know what? We learned in 93, you always take the Wazoo quarterback first. <laughs> That's the rule, it looks like, when you're down to two good quarterbacks, right? I mean, one and two. I thought that, uh, was Ryan Lee first? <laughs> I thought he? that Peyton Manning was first. Am I wrong about that? Oh, maybe, I don't know. I thought, I thought Leaf Again, was first overall. Yeah, My know. God. I don't know. Tom Flores, I know, though. You used to know all this stuff. <laughs> That's true. I used to anyway, watch sports. Guest number one, Rick Meyer, 20 minutes, reminiscing about the high school days. He was a high school legend. Oh, Could have gone anywhere he want, yeah. wanted. Went to Notre Dame in his own backyard. He's from, he's from Indiana originally. Goes to Notre Dame. Drafted by the Seahawks. And then begins a 12-year NFL career, which just, for whatever reason, didn't work out. Does he get come up with any reasons or yeah, we talk about okay. Take a listen. Honestly, I remember his rookie. He refuses year. to use them as excuses. Okay. But then he uses them as excuses. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of guy. You know, you know the you know the whole routine. <laughs> yes, I do. I'm not gonna make excuses, yeah. but oh, yeah. one, two, three. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean that. I mean no, I, know. I think you gotta listen to him. I can't wait. Will you? Of course. Or am I going to sit down with you next week at this time and you're not going to have listened to Rick Ooh, Meyer? Ooh, I forgot about that. It yet. does take you a few months. Kicks me a while to, to catch guess. up, yeah. yes. All right, guess number two is John Hawkins, my favorite golf writer, Sports Illustrated, the morning read on the new open champion, little Brian Harmon, the left-hander, won at Royal Liverpool. All five foot six of them. Five six? He says five seven, well, I say five six. I know another guy who claims to be five five and a half and... <laughs> Believe me, he ain't no five five and a half. So I I know that routine. <laughs> we'll talk about Brian Harmon, the new Open champion, and then does the name Sally Jenkins mean anything to you? Mm, no. Our third guest is named Sally Jenkins. Her father was one of the great sports writers of all time. A guy named Dan Jenkins. Yeah, no, that, that sounds familiar. So his daughter Sally Jenkins. She went to Stanford. She's been writing for thirty years. Oh wow. She's written books. She writes stories, columns, Washington Post. Very well respected in the sports industry. And the daughter of Dan, she's got a new book out called The Right Call. What sports teach us about work and life. So what we can learn from like Bill Belichick, Peyton Manning, ah. Michael Phelps, Steve Kerr. She interviewed them all over the years. And she's got to piece together what they teach her or what they should teach all of us. And I also reminisce about something that she did that I'll always remember. When that whole fiasco with Jerry Sandusky at Penn State, oh, yeah, the awful era yeah, of yeah. Penn State football, and Joe Paterno was fired, and they took the statue down or yeah. whatever. Remember, he died right before he died. After all of that went down, only one person interviewed him. Hmm. Sally Jenkins. Really? I believe she was the first person to interview him. And I think he died like 10 days later or eight wow. days later. He was sick at the time of the interview where he was trying to defend himself in his actions or inaction yep. in the whole Jerry Sandusky thing. So she is interview number three. Who says you weren't working last week putting a show like this together with these guests? Nice work. Who? Yeah. Frank and fucking oh. Fife. <laughs> or fucking Fa Frank and Fife. Or I like it. The three Fs. <laughs> well, we're going to try really hard. On this episode 247, after a week break, the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage, whatever you do, 
don't be scared away from looking to buy or sell a home in the Northwest or anywhere else by scary interest rates talk. This is where the cream rises to the top, like Jordan Flowers and his team, the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage, super creative with solutions that you have no idea about until you call and it costs nothing but like seven minutes of your time. He may surprise you. 425-890-2957. When you think about Daniel's Broiler, yes, the great steaks, best in the world, prepared perfectly, the -the over-the-top pampering and service from the moment you walk through the doors. But don't forget, this summer outdoor dining at Daniel's Broiler, very underrated, on the deck at Leshy, the seaplanes at South Lake Union, overlooking the world at Bellevue Place, Daniel's Broiler, You got to love Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses, Evergreen Golf Call, the tax advisor, certified financial planners, the experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning taxes and investments under one roof at evergreengk.com. More than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. Zeke's Pizza celebrating that complete makeover of their brand new mobile app, Remote ordering, never been easier. Get yourself a cherry bomb or a Puget Pounder right to your door. Homegrown in the Northwest, we love Zeke's Pizza. And John Waterstrat, Fireside Home Solutions, the new flagship Bellevue location with a facelift, and it was beautiful before they began the work. Whether it's a brand new fireplace inside or out or garage doors, begin your search at Fireside Home Solutions. Episode 247. I think you'll really like the Rick Meyer interview, and it all begins right now. Unfiltered. I would not make that trade that they've done so many times in the past to rent a player that's only going to be a hired gun for the remainder of this year. I don't think they're good enough or close enough to being a world championship contender. Unfiltered. You trade Teoscar Hernandez if you're out of it because he ain't coming back. You're not, you're not. Are you sure about that? Is everybody completely sure about that? Because here's what I know about the offseason that's coming up. They're going to need some offensive players. Now, I don't know if they're signing their own or signing new guys. I don't know what that market looks like. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 247, Hot Shots Scott, is now officially underway. Two weeks later, I'd like to apologize to everybody in Fife not named Frank. I'm not apologizing to Frank. Yeah. But if there's anybody else in Fife <laughs> who found themselves disappointed that they had to wait two weeks for episode 247, I apologize to you. I like it. Yeah. By the way, uh, you'll yeah. be happy to know Piper's an unrestricted free agent with the club softball world. So if anyone's looking for a second year 14 year Did catcher, she get released? <laughs> yeah, she got released. <laughs> Well, all 12 kids. Well, so no. there's. Well, but so listen. You're there, joking around. No, no, I'm not. But there's 12 kids on her team. Yeah. 11 of the 12 have to go up to 16U. Yeah. And she can stay at 14 and play another year at 14. So it probably makes sense to, for her to play oh, it's her. Oh, at the end of the year. Yeah, it's the end of the year. Her she contract didn't get released wasn't halfway renewed. through. Her contract wasn't renewed. <laughs> I, yeah, they're going to pass on her, it looks like, for, uh, for 16, which kind of makes sense because she can okay. play 14. So again. she's going to play on the same team. Or she there could. is no team. They all went up to sixteen. Oh. Yeah, she so was playing by herself. She'd be her looking around, going, "Hey, I'm the I'm the Spice fourteen U team." So now, what's the latest on the rekindling and the reunion of that of that Little League World Series team? Because I brought that up 
I don't know if I should bring this up. Okay. I brought that up to a couple of mutual friends of ours, let's just say. Yeah. And I got an interesting, lukewarm response. Is that is that team happening? That intermediate or whatever you call juniors, juniors, the yep. junior softball team. Is that happening? Stalled. I got the sense. Stalled. I got the sense. And I don't think it's moving. <laughs> it's just stuck. Yeah. I don't think it's moving. I think it's a long shot at best to get that back. Yeah, together. I brought it up to a, a couple of mutual friends of ours, and the reaction was very enjoyable for me. Does the last name start with C? I'm not going to say who it was. Oh, okay. I'm just going to say that the reaction was, you know, that hotshot Scott, he's a troublemaker. <laughs> he's causing yeah. all kinds of trouble on your show. At which time somebody else in the stands listening in who also knows you because everybody knows you. Seems like it, yeah. Said, he's been that way for years. <laughs> We've known him since he was a kid. He's uh, been a troublemaker yeah. since he was a kid. Hard to argue. You're being you're being typecast as a troublemaker yeah. on the Mitch Unfiltered show. But like that you like to stir it up. Yeah, you like to stir do. up the problem. I've been like, like your friend said, I've been that way since I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know that I believe her. I'm just telling you what she said. Oh, uh, oh she. Okay, good. I'm oh. thinking about who it is now. Well, now that's two people, remember. That's yes. Honestly. You want, you want a non parent? Now I've never coached softball. I've coached baseball. I don't know yeah. if there's a difference. But you want a non parent objective coach? Come calling. I got an uh, Ask my boys my career baseball, basketball, coaching record. <laughs> Just ask them. Might be good podcast fodder. If I was the coach, if I stepped in and coached this team the, all the way to the, to the World Series in Kirkland, I don't even have to go anywhere. Beautiful, really. No state, I mean, yeah, no state tournament, no regional. Piper knows she's going to hit last in the lineup, right? That's, <laughs> by the way, yeah. regionals for, for this for that age is in uh, Tucson right now, where it's 110. I don't want that. No, you don't, don't need don't, any don't of that. Need that. Well, from softball to baseball, do you realize the biggest, we are now in the midst of the biggest week in Major League Baseball every single year, not including the World Series or the playoffs. Right, you do right. understand. The countdown to the, the trade, trade deadline. deadline. Yeah. The countdown to the end of July, the beginning of August. I think in this case, August 1st. Who's going to buy? Who's going to sell? What are the Mariners going to do after winning two out of three against the Toronto Blue Jays? And now I think they're back to one game over 504 and a half behind the last <laughs> playoff spot. Jerry DePoto went on a local radio station, I'll have you know. They still have those? 710 ESPN. And what did he say? He said... We've not really separated ourselves in a meaningful way to be aggressive on the buying end. Last year, we were very aggressive in the trade market. We're probably not going to be in that market this year. <sighs> Do you believe him, Trader Jerry? We're going to be more in the margins market, he says. We are trying to find a way that we can, yeah, get a little better in 23, but get much better and situate ourselves for 2024 and beyond. Let's start with styrofoam coolers only in the dugout from now on. Only styrofoam. Oh, yeah. Let's start with that. Ooh. That'll help. So he's basically saying, look, guys. This is what he's saying. I don't know that I believe him entirely. I don't know why he would throw that out there if it wasn't true. I mean, that's not something you want to tell your fans, really. You don't want to tell them that it's kind of a lame duck rest of the year. I think when he said it last week, mm -hmm. he probably believed it. But I think certain people are wired a certain way. Okay. And then when they get close to that apple pie, that Chevrolet, when they get close to that moment, he might not be able to help himself 
when he looks at the standings on, I don't know, July 30th, and he sees that his team is, I don't know, two games, one game behind the wild card, okay. and somebody calls him and offers him something, I don't think I'm sitting here saying that I think that Jerry is a liar, that he went on the radio station and lied. Yeah. I do believe whatever he said, he probably believed at the time, but he is wired a certain way. He is wired <laughs> to go for it. Yeah. He is wired to trade. He is wired to acquire. And I'm not so sure that I completely buy that we're going to get to the trading deadline if this team continues to win a little bit, one, two out of three against the Blue Jays. Mm -hmm. If they continue to stay right there within one, two of a wild card with this pitching staff, thinking if they could just get in as a wild card, what could they do in the, in the postseason? I don't know that I buy it. We'll find out. Well, give us the state of the Mariners right now. What would you do as the GM? I would not do it. Okay. I would live by Jerry's words on the radio station. <laughs> okay. If I were, if I knew my job was secure, right? That I had a job past twenty three. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming he's secure through twenty three. If I didn't feel like I was secure through twenty three, I'd be buying everything in sight <laughs> trying to get to the playoffs. Yeah. But if yeah. I, if I was on solid ground, if I felt like I was on solid ground, yeah. I, I don't think I would mortgage my future for any kind of a rent-a-player that might expire at the end of this year. Anybody that I would acquire, I would have to believe that it's a really good, solid decision for next year and beyond that's okay. going to give me a really good chance in 24 and 25. I don't think I'd be a huge buyer at the deadline because I just feel like this team has shown shown me what they are, what it is. And that's a 500 baseball team. Pretty good sample size at this point, right? That doesn't mean that I will object if he decides to do that. <laughs> what do you care? I am a fan. It's not your money. What do you give a crap? I, I am a fan. <laughs> right. But I don't know that I would. I think the, the more interesting story doesn't even involve the Seattle Mariners. Okay. What's going to happen with Shohei Otani? Mm-hmm in the next week before the trade deadline. Because I sit here and think about him. You know the story. Free agent at the end of the year. Crazy. Probably looking at 10 years, at least $600 million, maybe $700 million. He's going to break all barriers. Yep. He's a pitcher. He's one of and the best pitchers. He's one of the best hitters. He's going to get more money than anybody ever has gotten in the free agent market. But... Everything that you hear from the Angels these days is they're not trading Shohei Otani before the deadline. And that, to me, makes absolutely zero sense. I, I can't imagine that there is any rational explanation for them not trading. To me, there's only one scenario out of a billion where I wouldn't trade Shohei Otani. What's that? One scenario. Okay. If I felt like I had a chance to resign him at the end of the year. Okay. I know that I have six hundred million to spend, or I'm going to throw a lot of money. I know I'm in the ball. So I'm, I know I'm in the game. Yep. And I want to be in the game. And he says to me, the owner Artie Marino, Mitch Levy. He says to me, "Don't trade me if you want me to stay here long term. I don't want to be traded. I don't want to be traded to another team that has a chance to win a World Series. I'd like to stay here for the remainder of the year. Trading me will give you." less of a chance to sign me long-term. That would be the only scenario that, and I might still trade him. Right. Because I might still say to myself, who am I kidding? The Yankees, the Mets, the Dodgers, somebody's going to get, that, he, yeah. he's, somebody's going to give him more than I can. So I might still trade him, but that would be that scenario. You understand the scenario? Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's the type of guy that would ever do that from all accounts. Yeah. First of all, 
if they trade him, they're going to trade him to a team where he's going to go for a couple of months and have a chance to win a World Series. It's not going to be some some also-run right. team. It's going to be like the Braves, the Dodgers, yeah. the whoever it is. Somebody's going to give up a pretty good penny to rent that guy and think, oh, God, we put him in our rotation and him in the middle of our top of our lineup, and we're going to win the World Series this year. So he gets an opportunity to go somewhere and maybe win a ring in a couple of months' time and then obviously ring the bell for his $600 million contract. Other than that, why in the world would you not trade him? I would call him into the office and I would say the following. Hey, Shohei, we want you to be an angel for life and we're ready to back up the Brinks trucks and give you whatever you want. We hope that you'll remain an angel for life. What we'd like to do is trade you, give you a chance to win a World Series in the next couple of months, and then re-sign you. And when you come back here, we're going to have somebody's best two prospects because we were able to trade you. And then when you (laughs) sign for 10 years, you're going to have two players that are going to be all-stars because you were willing to go somewhere else for a couple of months. You're going to come back here and play with two guys that we had no chance of ever having in our organization. We're going to go rip somebody off real quick. And then you come back and play with the guys no, we got in the it, ripoff. It may not be a ripoff. They <laughs> yeah. may win the World Series Yeah, right. With you. It might be worth it. But we're going to get somebody. And, and you might say to me, Mitch, who's giving up their top prospect knowing that Shohei Otani is going to leave at the end of the year? I don't. We're talking about a guy for two months who would be your best starter and your best hitter yeah. and might win you a World Series. I think somebody who's loaded with prospects might just give up their top, like one of the top baseball prospects in the entire sport that the Angels could then put it double A and say to Shohei, now come back. Yeah. And that guy's going to be in the middle of our lineup making all-star games. Yeah, you're almost getting Those two, guys. two guys. I mean, yeah. for, for Shohei, right? I mean, so yeah, so, so somebody, I, somebody might. So, so everybody keeps saying they're not going to trade him. And I keep saying, yes, they are. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why wouldn't you? Can you afford, if you're the Angels, let's say you're the Angels and you don't think you have any chance this year, Trout's hurt, whatever, you're, you're drifting away. You're going to play with this guy for the next two months knowing you could get somebody's top prospect or top two prospects or two or three great guys, great younger players. You're going to literally play with this guy the last few months and that knowing that you're probably going to lose him at the end of the year, somebody's going to outbid you when you could have gotten two of the game's great prospects in return on July 30th. Why would you not trade him? Yeah, why would you risk that? It's silly. No, I'm with you. I'm watching very closely, obviously, the Mariners, but I'm watching Shohei Otani. And if you said to me, well, everybody's writing, he's not going to get moved, he's not going to get moved, he's not going to get moved. You say, Mitch, 50-50, even money, in Vegas, Mirage, (laughs) Bellagio. (laughs) I think I'm betting he's going to get traded. Yeah. It, it almost doesn't trading. feel legal to do that. like To to, to wink at him and say, hey, let's get somebody's great prospect. Yes, prospects. we'll grab a prospect or two. Like, how can you upgrade your team better than him with one you player? You can't. You can't. It's not possible. Impossible. Yeah, so definitely. I don't think you can do it with two players. <laughs> yeah, maybe not, right? Yeah, pick two players. I don't know. So the Mariners have to figure out what they're going to do, and we'll find Come out about Come to Seattle. Them. You heard that at the All-Star I game? Sure, I sure did. Yeah. Can we just put our hopes aside as Mariner fans for Shohei? Like, that's not happening. Like if, if if it happens, it if, happens. If they won't get a shortstop. They're not going to get Shohei Otani, right? But he breaks all rules and all barriers. I mean, you oh, can't. Oh, he does. Okay. Oh. Well, I mean, do they look at it that way? I mean, that's Maybe. how we look at it, but the guys that are paying him, do they look at it that way? It's too bad the guy, the guys from Nintendo don't still own the, own the team. That was a nice in with uh, Ichiro, right? Yeah. Yeah. That would have been nice. 
I think they went to the team and they said, listen, blow through our budget, whatever the budget is. We want that guy on our team. Yeah. Whatever money you need, he doesn't play. It would be disrespectful to us as a team if that guy plays in any other ballpark. We need a little of that yeah. during the offseason. It would be nice. Yeah. Three interviews, including Rick Meyer. How do you say his name? Rick Meyer. I think everyone says it like M-E-Y-E-R. I don't think it's Myrer. By the way, speaking of him, I meant to ask you earlier when we were talking about him. Yeah. Did somebody come out and predict he's going to win two Heisman trophies, or am I thinking of someone else? No, you're thinking of someone else. You're thinking of Bino Cook, my friend Bino Cook. May he rest in peace. Was he the one that loved Meyer? He loved a guy named Ron Paulus. Oh, Ron Paulus. Notre Dame? Yes. That's right. <laughs> I forgot about I that. I think it was Ron Paulus. Oh, okay. All right. Different. Paulus, Paulus. Yeah. P-A-U or P-A-W. Yeah. Do you remember the guy I'm talking of about? Of course. Yeah. He's the guy that Bino said was going to win two Heismans in yeah. Notre Dame. And then he never heard it. Heard the end of it to the day he died. I'm sure. I think it's on his gravestone. <laughs> Three interviews, including Rick. Say it. Myrer. Myrer. <laughs> uh, and then the other stuff segment. It's been a while since we caught up with Jordan Flowers, my main man of the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. How's everything going in Jordan's world? Hey, Mitch, it's going fantastic. I'm uh, chasing old Mitchie in the <laughs> Manager of the Year Award for Little League Baseball. How many teams you got over there? You know, I was the manager of two, both my 10 and 8-year-old. Uh -huh. And I got to say... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be giving you a run for your money, Combined man. Combined record? Oh, gosh. We only lost probably six games. Oh, that's six season. more than I lose. I don't lose. Hey, hey, hey. All right, let's talk about the market, the buying and selling market. It's not easy these days. But it's still doable, especially for home buyers. Give us your analysis, Jordan. Absolutely. Uh, inventory is still a little tight, but better than it was. But we are winning a lot of offers and using that 2-1 buy-down program we've talked about. Tell me about that program. Yes. So basically what we do is we are negotiating with the sellers, getting a price that they want, getting a credit towards uh, closing costs for our buyers. And they use that credit to then temporarily buy down the interest rate for the first two years of the home. So we get through this kind of elevated interest rate period with a 2% lower rate than what market is at. Are people still buying second homes and investment pieces? And what do you have to offer those types of clients? Yeah, people are buying in Arizona, California, Eastern Washington, kind of all over. We're helping people buy second homes and investment properties. We've got a couple great options for the investment property buyer, uh, especially uh, using that debt service underwriting ratio that we've talked about in the past where they don't even need to provide tax returns. Really what we look for is qualifying our buyers off of the cash flow of the property. So it's a great program right now for people looking to pick up investment properties at good prices, get an income-producing property. Is there a way to have a best guess of what the next six months or a year look like? Does Jordan Flowers have a crystal ball? <laughs> I thought I had a crystal ball, but you know... <laughs> Is it Ernie Zampezi's story? I'm not going to say when. I'm just going to know it's coming, right? <laughs> like We're going to get through this, and they're coming back down. I think I think we should expect for the rest of this year rates to maintain in the 6% range. Maybe we see them by the end of the year get back down in the fives. But I will say when they do come back into the low sixes to mid fives, it will, again, open up floodgates for buyers and for sellers bringing properties on. So there is pent-up demand. It's sitting there, and it's just we're... We're waiting. 
Well, I've always loved Jordan Flowers and his team at uh, both companies, not Cross Country Mortgage, the Woodenville office, because they're willing to take your phone call and be creative. Think outside the box. And to reach you on a phone that doesn't have a full voicemail, Jordan Flowers? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, I just got a new phone. My kids like to tease me that I'm the no upgrader. I don't upgrade my phone. I've had the same one for six years. And I've now upgraded and I'm setting up the voicemails. Everything's going to be Phone number? Same phone number? Give us the number, please. 425-890-2957 is the best one to reach me on. The Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage and J-Flow, Jordan Flowers, without... Guys like him and companies like theirs, where would Mitch Unfiltered be? Cross Country Mortgage. Unfiltered. I can't get over the way Myra stays in that pocket. He's not disturbed at all by the rush. He's not influenced at all by the rush. Stays in the pocket, steps up, follows through, got rid of the ball nicely. He gets rid of the, rid of the ball kind of high. He really has got a delivery a little bit like Montana. Our next guest was earmarked for stardom at a very young age. In the 70s and 80s, he was an Indiana high school star quarterback, legendary quarterback in Indiana. He was compared to Joe Montana at Notre Dame and then the second overall pick right here in Seattle in 1993. And while... Maybe his professional career didn't take off the way he had hoped. 12 seasons in the NFL, followed by a successful, as I understand it, career in the wine industry. Here's Rick Meyer. Hi, Rick. It's been a long time. Yeah. Hello. Yes, it's been forever, but it's good good to talk. Thank you for doing it, and I appreciate you being willing to reminisce about your football life. But before we do that, many might not know about your post-playing days. Mirror Wine. You and Bledsoe both got into the wine business, came into the league at the same time. Tell that story. How did it happen? Oh, it's funny. You know, I, I finished in 04 in Detroit and uh, did 12 years. Drew went a few more, but we were really close the whole way through. And we did some trips to Napa. We, we traded a lot of wine. We were both collecting wine kind of in the second half of our years. Not, not right away, but after we got a little bit of experience and, and grew up a little bit, I guess. And I, I don't think either one of us ever expected to get into the business, but you know, that goes, I mean, you, you know, you have to find something you're interested in and something that keeps you busy and stimulates you. And, um, for both of us, it you know, football was just playing. It wasn't the coaching part other than like just our kids and little, you know, little levels of stuff, you know, helping out, um, you know, with some of the fears with tackle football for young guys. So we both did time in that. And then, um, after a few years that, you know, I had a bunch of friends in Napa, um, Drew and I had talked about doing something together up, up his way in Walla Walla, but it just became evident to me that that was more of his territory. And I'm, I was, you know, living in California and still do. So, uh, we started really, really small and, um, we've made good wine and it's been fun. We've had a few changes just, you know, as you do over a bunch of years and, uh, the winemaking team is great, and uh, it's it's fun to spread it around the country. And if I had a glass of yours and a glass of his without knowing which one was which, who would be the number one pick and who would be the number two pick, Meyer? <laughs> oh, they'd reverse it. They'd reverse it. <laughs> no, you know they're we're we're real friendly on that. I mean, both both are really good, and and Drew has a bunch of different skews. There's a lot of different 
uh, projects that he's really developed. And it's very impressive. Um, but the, but you know, if you went with the high end double back and the high end mirror, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same. I mean, they're the different regions, but it's, uh, really good and, and well-received by a lot of people. And, Rick, to make us all feel really old, you have three sons. I understand two lacrosse players and one Stanford quarterback. That's right. The two lacrosse guys are done. They're out of school now. Um, gosh, our oldest is almost 25. It's crazy. Oh Time flies. God. But, yeah, he was at Notre Dame, played, um, had a great career playing lacrosse there, and it was fun to go back and reconnect with a lot of old friends and, and meet some new families and you know parents of these kids our middle guy oliver went to michigan and played four years and they had a program best uh season last year so that was a fun ride as a senior and, and getting to play a lot uh i've traveled all over the world you know not in that world but all over the country for lacrosse it's, you know we i think i spent most of my time in the summers when they were younger back in baltimore and philly and places like that but and then Charlie's a, a sophomore at Stanford, so he's our football guy. They all played high school football, and they were good high school football players. But Charlie's uh, Charlie was baseball, football, and, and uh, he was stuck with the COVID years of high school, so they had kind of shortened seasons and stuff. And they won a state championship in football, and he got some attention. And and uh, Stanford, you know, came calling, and it's just been a good fit for him. So finally, we have a kid that's in the same time zone and somebody we can go visit a little bit ah. easier. You know, Rick, it's time for my first hard-hitting question. Are you ready? You're sitting down? I'm sitting, yep. Has Charlie ever had a hot dog on the sideline yet in his uh, college <laughs> career? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, <laughs> if, he, if he could, he would, though. If he was offered one, he'd probably take it. <laughs> uh, is the statute of limitations up? Are you, are you willing to tell that story? Our audience has no idea what I'm talking Some of our audience has no idea what we're talking about. But are you willing to tell that story? Uh, it's not my favorite story, but I'm, I'm happy to <laughs> defend myself. Okay. Um, yeah, we're a preseason game in uh, up in um, I say up. It's up from here in San Francisco, and, and uh, very common behavior is, is finding some food at halftime. Or these are night games, you know, and it's you've been in training camp and stuff. And uh, I'm standing on the sideline in a parka in August, and it candlestick <laughs> because it was you know kind of freezing. Yeah. I think people that understand uh, Northern California can relate. Yeah. And Cortez had a had a hot dog, and he hands me half of it, and I take a bite, and all of it's on camera. Like, it, and John Madden's doing the game, and he kind of <laughs> circles it and points me out as if as if it's kind of uh, a no no, which is funny because every other guy down the sideline had something too. But yeah, it didn't it didn't play out well, and it didn't mean I wasn't paying attention. It, it was. <laughs> I'll blame it on Cortez, but I, I I gladly took it, and it was kind of a nice little snack before we had another hour and a half or something of football left. And how much did that hot dog cost you, Rick? It didn't cost me a lot. They did have to fine us just because they felt yeah. obligated to do something. So? Um, I think it was 1000 bucks. That's a $1,000 hot dog, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was more than that because it really – People took that the wrong way, and they blew that out of proportion. Oh, um, I mean, you still need to play well, but I mean, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't. Game. Come on, <laughs> I know. it's a preseason I know. game for God's sakes. Uh, I agree. Uh, anyway, I've got lots on my list, so let's go through some of this. We just want to hear your stories. Go back to your Indiana quarterbacking days. I'm not sure that I knew the story about the Goshen High School coach that was supposed to coach you, or you thought was going to coach you. And then quit, I think, during your freshman year. Identify that guy. 
it was my dad. He coached for 19, I think 19 years, might've been 20. Uh, he, he's in the hall of fame. He won state championships and stuff. And he, he got out before I came in. He, he didn't <laughs> quit on anybody. He didn't want to coach me. And he felt like I was going to be in better hands or be able to be kind of featured differently if it wasn't his kid. So uh, he, he that, it was surprising to me, plenty of lead up time going into my freshman year. So, I mean, I was nowhere near a varsity player at that point, but it, when he told me, I'm like, really? Like, you know, I've gone to the camps and I've been a gym rat hanging around my whole childhood yeah. uh, with my brother and, and all these other kids. And, and uh, it was just a, it, you know, he could almost appoint the next guy. There was an assistant, yeah. a great family friend, Randy Robertson, who had left to head coach down south toward Indianapolis. And he came back and it was just the perfect thing for me in my class. And then probably the following, it was just, it was a pretty slick move on my dad's part. He, it, what drove him nuts was sitting in the stands and kind of hearing what people say because he'd never really been in the stands. But mm. as a parent, you know, once I got playing, he's got the headphones on listening to the guys <laughs> on the radio instead of the people next to him. But uh, we had a good run. I had an unbelievable class. I stayed in touch with all, a lot of those guys, and we won a state championship. And uh, okay. it's the last one they won, and that was 1988. Right. <laughs> so it's been a while. Everybody wants Rick Meyer. In college, everybody wants him. You grew up loving Michigan. Um, there was a, yep. a little flirtation, I think, with some Pac-12 or Pac-10 schools at the time. You ended up at, of course, legendary Notre Dame. How'd they get you? How, how, how'd, they, uh, how'd they win Rick Meyer's heart? Well, I, you're right. I was a big Michigan fan. I was kind of brainwashed. My parents were both from Michigan or went to college at Eastern Michigan and my dad was a huge uh, Wolverine fan and, and actually sold programs in the stadium when he was a kid. He grew up a town over. So that part, you know, I, I grew up in, surrounded by the Big Ten. And Notre Dame just happened to be right there. And it was different, but it was kind of just, it all just kind of blended together. But we weren't, I, I wasn't raised Catholic. It wasn't like I was always going to go to Notre Dame. It was not at all the case. They just happened to run the table in 88 and have an undefeated season and national championship and when it came down to the last two, it was Michigan and Notre Dame. I, I considered Stanford and Florida State and UCLA and a, you know a lot of others just originally at the at the beginning. But when I willed it down to the last two, it was just simply Bo Schimbeckler's health and the momentum that Notre Dame had. It's, it's just wild that it winds up being the school that's 20 miles away. Mm-hmm. But it worked out. I love the guys. Uh, Coach Holtz had a lot of good things cooking and I was in the middle of his 11 years so it, we didn't have any instability with coaches or any of that um you know I just want to be on a good team both were good teams but uh you know we didn't lose until the end of our my freshman year so there yeah. was a 23 game winning streak I think and it was fun to be a part of some of that and enjoy what you know the plus the NBC thing and 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 just the attention Notre Dame got it just um and I'm not, believe me, I'm not thinking about the pros at that point. I mean, it was just, it was just, where do you go to the, you know, get a good degree and get a chance to play on a good team. And your first start and first win was against who, Rick? Of course it was Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> had to be. Now, are yeah. we, are we a hundred percent sure that your dad was rooting for Notre Dame that day? Are we positive yeah. about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, as a parent now watching my kids play, yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> The school stuff, and I, I, you know, I've been to a Notre Dame game at watching my son on the other sideline now. So, yeah, uh, I've been to lacrosse with Notre Dame in Michigan, and I got two kids on 
you know, a kid on either team. So it's, that was a little, you're a little torn when that's the situation, but you do anything for your kids. Right. right so, right. uh, I'm, I'm certain he was pulling for us. True or false. Lou Holtz, when he came to visit you at high school, slipped on the ice and fell down. True. He fell flat on his back <laughs> and it was icy and wet. And, and he's walking in the door at the athletic director's office, like a little entrance, not the main interest to the school, but you know, he was directed toward, you know, where I was going to be. And they opened the door and bam, he's flat on his back. And, and, uh, <laughs> you know, that was an awkward thing. We had been, I'd met him many times and I'd been to campus a bunch, but this was just a formality. And he, he you know, he, they kind of almost pick him up and bring him inside. And there's a, the office is right inside the door. So they sit him on his chair, on this chair and he's kind of collecting himself. And then he pops up and says, Oh, good to see you. Hey, I'm okay. Let's go. Let's talk. All right, so you have you have a great Notre Dame career. You didn't win a national championship, but you won a lot of big games. You were always on TV, a lot of big bowl games. What a terrific career Rick Meyer had at Notre Dame. Then, the lead-up to the draft, Rick, remind me, everybody thinks you and Bledsoe are going to go one and two. Parcells would say later, I never really considered Meyer, even though he was a great quarterback. I really wanted Bledsoe. Did you know in your heart of hearts that it was going to be Seattle the whole time? Or come draft night, were you still unsure? Nobody knew. No, Drew would tell you the same thing. We had no idea. We knew we, what had been revealed was both teams were taking a quarterback. So it was, it was whichever order it was going to go. And Drew didn't know. I clearly didn't know. And what I, what I did get from Parcells years later when I played for him at the Jets is, his, the difference to him was Drew's 18 months younger. He, he came out early, and I'm old for my class. Mm-hmm. And not that it, you know, anymore do you draft guys thinking you're going to keep them for 12 or 15 years in one place. I mean, free agency's changed the whole way it works. But uh, he, you know, when it, I mean, he, there was probably other things. Drew's, Drew was great. He, he had a, a great run there. But um, he was just younger. And, and he, they, had, they, you know, they thought maybe they'd get more years out of him. So, in retrospect, were you comfortable here as a young guy playing quarterback? You know, everybody tells us all the time, a young player's success, Rick, often relies upon the fit, the environment, the scheme, the coaching staff. Who'd you have? Flores and then Dennis Erickson. Yes. Would you say you were comfortable here, or was it not a great spot for you? Of course, you were co-rookie of the year, your first year out of the gate. How would you reminisce about those early years here in Seattle? I was incredibly comfortable. I, I really enjoyed how it started. And, and uh, Tom Flores is probably the last true gentleman head coach, old school guy that, you know, won as a player and as a GM and as a, you know, games as a, as a head coach for years too. I, I had nothing but respect for him. I think things changed dramatically when we didn't win enough for him to keep the job. And I'll say, you know, it, it, you got to compete. You got to play well. There's a lot of things. You know, I was raw. The, the offense I played in in college wasn't the style the NFL game was. So there was a lot to learn. And it wasn't until I got to Chicago or especially, you know, Green Bay and San Francisco and the West Coast offense that I, I finally got to see what the other teams did and how, how differently they prepared and how more prepared they were and how more you know, it, it wasn't emotional decisions on down and distance. This was all kind of mapped out and, and things were charted. And you had already made the decision on the first 
third and five to seven, like kind of what your sequence or what, what your top priorities were in your choices. So it didn't feel like that in Seattle. We were kind of winging it a little bit more. The team, a little bit in disarray. The, the ownership was trying to move us. Mm-hmm. The, the building was falling apart. Our bubble blew over. I mean, there were, there were a lot of things, and there were other kind of different off-the-field things that added in. But I, I, was, it was, I was sad to leave. I, I wanted that to work for a lot longer than it did. But I'm, I'm happy it happened, and I was really excited to get started there had an awesome time. My, my wife was with me. Um, she'd say the same thing. We, we didn't love the rain part, you know, all that much, but I couldn't complain much cause I'm from Goshen, Indiana. Right. And it's snowing and, and, and worse. So yeah, we, I mean, we had a, we had an awesome time and I was really proud to be a part of that. But you were, you were just describing an environment, all these different things going on around you with the building and the ownership and the wing in it. You're describing something that might've been very difficult for a young quarterback to progress and succeed in, or am I overreading that? You know, you can say it. <laughs> I'm never going to make excuses. Okay. Um, but, but there were a lot of distractions and there was a lot of reasons. I mean, we moved to Anaheim without permission, right? As if we were, the team was moving and then they brought us back. I mean, what's that tell your fan base? <laughs> it was hard to get people to really want to get behind us. I mean, when the place was rocking, it was really rocking. That old stadium was great. We had some some good wins, but you know, I, I I'm playing day one on a two and fourteen team, and it, it wasn't easy. And and you know, Drew had the same struggles. They were two and fourteen also, but it, it it would have been hard for anybody to win a bunch of games at that point. They just didn't have enough. And and you know, obviously there's cycles, and it it got better. And you know, you kind of up and down over the years. But the fans were great to me. I mean, I I, I really liked being there. We just had to work through a lot of tough situations and then a coaching change and then, mm-hmm. you know, some new people show up and, and there's different kinds of loyalties. So that's just how it works at that level and, and it's business. And when it's time to move on, you move on and try to make the best of the, of the next situation. Do you think back and wonder, God, what would my career have been like if I had been drafted somewhere else that was in more stable, better situation to win football games or do you not allow your mind to go there rick well it doesn't matter i mean there's definitely plenty of i mean i wanted to play but there's tons of examples of guys that sit for a couple years behind a veteran guy who's established and then when you do play in year three or four or even year two you have a clue what's going on and how it works we didn't have that luxury uh this team was was you know, kind of hanging on by a thread in a tough division with a bunch of other established teams and, and hard places to play. And, and um, yeah, we had a lot of travel. It, w- it wasn't easy, but, but, you know, if you play better, you can make up for all that, but that there, there would have been some miraculous stuff required to, yeah. to win 10 games or something. We won six and it was like, we won, like we were in the playoffs. Right. I mean, having, right. you know, they only won two, I think by game five, we already had three wins and it was like, here we go. We got something. So I, I would, I would have loved to see Tom Flores and his staff stay longer. That would, that would have helped. I think we would have turned the corner or at least had a really good chance to turn the corner, but it is what it is. And, and that's, that's just, that's how it is. So Ricky get traded to Chicago. Do you remember your emotions? Did it feel like a relief? Like there was a weight off your shoulder and a fresh start did it feel sad? It was a relief because Chicago was like going back home. Yeah. And again, not a great team. 
Dave Wonstadt was the head coach. I mean, I think an amazing coordinator, maybe not one of the top head coaches, but again, you know, kind of a rebuilding situation, but it was my introduction to the West coast offense. I was comfortable in Chicago because I knew, I knew my way around. They haven't won a lot since 85. I mean, I guess they've made it to a Super Bowl, but it, it, I go to Chicago quite a bit and those Bears fans are still starving for, mm-hmm. for some sort of deep playoff run or some consistency, especially at the quarterback position, but they may have their guy now, but um, it, yeah, it was, it was a difficult thing as, as we got going and we had some injuries to the wrong guys and stuff, but I was, yeah, you, when it's time to move on, you turn the page and, and uh, I, I was a little grumpy maybe because I felt like, you know, these, this team doesn't want me anymore, but right. I'm not the first guy that's happened to or the only guy that's happened to. So it's just part of the, job description. And, um, I, I was optimistic going there though. I thought, let's try to stay here for 10 years and make this thing go. So there were stops in Chicago and green Bay and the jets and San Francisco and in Oakland. And you know, the, the last half or more of your career, you're a backup after all these expectations were heaped upon your shoulders as a young man. Were those years as a backup difficult for you, Rick, or easy because it was easy work. It depended on the season. I mean, you know, I went to the Jets to be Vinny's backup, Testaverde, and he, you know, tears his Achilles in the first game. So I've been there for three weeks, and now I'm up. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough situation. This team was expecting to win. They'd made it to the AFC Championship game the year before, and um, we're kind of ready to make a move. But, you know, when I was with the Raiders and we go to the Super Bowl and Rich Gannon's the MVP, that was easy. You, you want to play, of course. Everybody wants to play, but you understand, you know, that we got a guy that's hot and he and he's he's on fire and he worked harder than anybody I ever played with. I mean, he studied and did all the extra stuff and took care of his body and put himself back together every week and uh, and wasn't young. I mean, he was older than me and I was a veteran guy. So mm-hmm. it just depended on the seasons and, and and the situations. And some some places are rebuilding a little bit and some some are looking for the guy. Right. So it, it was always a competition. It felt like you're in training camp, you're always competing with the guys, but for the most part, everybody's on the same page trying to get to the same, as a team game, you know, trying to get, trying to get some wins yeah. and winning kind of takes care of everything. And some years we had a lot of wins and some, some, it was a lot tougher. Two last ones for you, Rick. So 20 years go by, I'm curious about this and you're out of football. You're enjoying the wine business. You're enjoying your family. The NFL is in your rear view mirror and you turn on the TV and the Seattle Seahawks are playing for the Super Bowl, and the starting quarterback is number three, and they win the Super Bowl, and the next year they nearly win it again. Any thoughts? Any feelings? Did you watch? Did you not watch? Did it bring back memories? Oh. What, what, what was it going through your mind when you were watching all that? Well, I always watch. I mean, I'm a big red zone guy now, and I, I like to see what's going on around the league. Now, yeah. Ton of the guys I'd played with or played against or coaching or you see them on the sidelines sprinkled all over the all over the league. No, I mean you, I couldn't help but think, man, that would have been fun to do that in that town and have, you know, kind of have that energy and 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 you know a nice run for a few years. But it's a different owner. It's a different stadium. It's right. a different era. Right. I mean, every every single thing about it was different. But I was happy for those guys. I mean, there, there were very few people that were involved at all when I was there that were still around. So it was a totally different 
program, but I'd be lying. I mean, of all the teams, I mean, I really think you think, I think of Seattle first because it's the one that picked me mm-hmm. and it's where we started and, and where, where everything got going. So yeah, I, I, there's no jealousy, I wouldn't say, but it's, it's like, you know, the t- timing's everything. And I think Russell's time ran out there. My time ran out there. Everybody's does eventually. And honestly, I was really happy for Matt Hasselbeck, who I was with in Green Bay when he had success there. And, and Trent Dilfer's a friend and he has some success. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it's more than just Russell, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they do this year. I think they had a, they have some momentum. I mean, I know there were a lot of changes with personnel, but I think they expect to win, and we'll be seeing what they can do this fall. Just about every one of us, and my hand is raised, would have given anything to be talented enough to play quarterback in the NFL for 12 seasons. You were able to do that. Are you able to look back and be proud of your accomplishments, or do the weighty expectations, the tough-to-read articles and opinions does it make it difficult for you? What's it like to talk to your kids about your playing days? Well, I think you nailed it. I mean, when you're starting, I mean, there's only 32 guys in the world that can say they're doing that, you know, and, and um, I'm really proud until the question's phrased that way, <laughs> until there's other ways of looking at it. But it's an endurance event. I actually been watching the, the Netflix quarterbacks thing that Peyton's done and, and recently here and it's just like I'm having these flashbacks some most of it's the contact and the hits and <laughs> putting yourself back together you know from from one week to the next but that first year I started all 16 games I mean that's kind of hard to do and and I didn't know anything so uh to hang around for 12 I mean I got to play a lot in my second to last year at a place that you know in Oakland which was the enemy for so long but when you're on their side it's a totally different feeling. It was it was awesome to be a part of that. But to get to see a Super Bowl, be around big playoff games, play for kind of historic franchises, um, it, it was a, it was something I'm really proud of because not that many people get to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Meyer, legendary high school career, and then fantastic in college at Notre Dame, and then 12 years in the NFL, starting right here in Seattle. You're really kind, Rick to uh, connect with me and, uh, and allow me to ask the questions and reminisce a little bit. Thank you so, so much. And I wish you and your family down in San Diego all the very best. I appreciate it, Mitch. Thanks a lot. Uh, and thanks for finding me. It's been a while since my friend and Mitch Unfiltered partner, John Waterstrat joined us. And there's good reason. He's been busy. An exciting major facelift to some of the fireside showrooms. How are you, J-Dub? I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks for having me back. And yes, it, it has been busy. And we're excited to unveil some new, cool new projects. We have a new sales director that came along and he's been putting his footprint on the showrooms and we're excited about what he's doing. We're going to put some new fireplaces you've never seen before before and then we're redoing our whole outdoor kitchen area wow the fantastic flagship bellevue location was already beautiful so i can't wait to drop by and see it so what's the rumor about some big project you're coming up some enormous fireplace that you guys are ready to install yes our commercial department is doing a fantastic job and as we've talked about before we can do almost anything in fireplaces and custom fireplaces are getting bigger and bigger and we're hoping to uh unveil the one of the largest fireplaces in north america it's going to be pretty exciting stuff how big roughly 25 feet and you're not going to tell us where it is but we'll be able to see it sometime and we'll be able to see it and we'll talk about it yeah it'll be exciting oh, that's yeah. going to be 
fun. So now that we've reached, let's call it the off season for fireplace use, it's actually, you and I talk about this, one of the better times of the year to start the process of redoing the fireplaces in your home or like you guys did for us, an outdoor unit. Yes. I mean, when the weather gets nice out there, things go a little bit faster. So we're not fighting the weather, whether we have to extract a fireplace, put a new one in. And then again, outside as well, when you're out there, we can get something done pretty quickly for you right now. And so when you're looking at the off season and you have a schedule and, and you want to get something done quickly, it's the best time to do it. Yeah. Whether it's fireplaces or garage doors, begin your search at firesidehomesolutions.com. I'll bet you'll end your search there too. It's sponsors like John and Fireside that make our shows and growing guest lists possible. Fireside Home Solutions and FiresideHomeSolutions.com. Ladies and gentlemen, she's the director of financial planning at our Mitch Unfiltered partner, Evergreen Golf Call, Katie Versio. She's also my arch nemesis when it comes to financial trivia. Katie, how are you? How's everyone over at Evergreen Golf Call? I'm doing well, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Everybody's good over there. Our theme today is what? So today we're doing a market update. Okay. Which brings us to three questions. I typically go over three. I'm I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good today. So I'm ready for question number one. As I know, we discussed quite a bit over the last few months. 2022 was the worst year on record for a balanced portfolio with both stocks and bonds down double digits. So true or false? In 2023, both stocks and bonds are up. Is that true or false? It's absolutely true, Katie Versio. That's right. It is true. So the market is off to a much better start this year, even though there's a lot more economic uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The stock market's up about 8% and bonds are up nearly 3%. Very good. And I am up one for one, which screams at me, quit, Mitch. Quit right now and go out one for one. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to press my luck. What's question number two, Katie? Okay, so number two is another true or false. We'll see how you do with this one. So the yield curve is currently inverted, meaning that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. Is that true or false? I'm going to say false, Katie. That's false. Oh, it's actually true. Wow. So I know it's uh, it's counterintuitive. Typically, you think the longer time frame you have, the more interest you get. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the opposite in this environment. It's typically an indication of a recession, and you actually get more interest for shorter time periods. That's actually surprising. It leaves me one for two. I'm not quitting. I'm continuing to press my luck. I'm going two for three. What's question number three, Katie? The 10-year treasury currently pays an interest rate of 3.5%. So knowing what we talked about in number two, what do six month treasuries yield? So 10 year yields three and a half. Does a six month treasury yield 4%, 5% or 6%? We know more. Question is how much more? I'm going B. I'm going 5% for 667. I'm going 5% for two out of three today. That's right, it is 5%. 
Yes, so it's an interesting environment where you only get three and a half percent for holding a position for 10 years, but you get 5% on the short term. So it's a really interesting environment with interest rates elevated at this level. We think now is a good time to lock in return. You can get better interest rates on money markets now. There's a lot more options for investors to park their cash than just a regular savings account. It's an unusual time in the world, the financial world, and they are there for you. EvergreenGK.com. Not only a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered and part of the reason that we are possible on this podcast, but just a terrific resource. So check them out. EvergreenGK.com. Unfiltered. course he did lovely scenes of celebration he has displayed great skills and great courage out there remember and with a score of 271 the winner of the gold medal and the champion golfer of the year is brian Harmon. golf's final major of the year is in the books and for many the most prestigious of them all It's Brian Harmon, the diminutive left-hander, 36 years old, two PGA Tour wins, not a skosh over five feet, seven inches tall. He controls the open, not a lot of drama. Liverpool for three days, hardly threatened. My man, the Hawk, John Hawkins of the Morning Read, one of the best golf scribes over the last quarter century. How are you, partner? I'm doing great, doing great. Yep. Major season's over. (laughs) Time to play my own ball now. (laughs) For our listeners who are not ardent golf fans, how about a thumbnail on Brian Harmon? Two wins in his uh, PGA Tour career, but he's won 28 million bucks, Hawk. Yeah, actually, I thought it was 30, and it's now three wins, partner. (laughs) Uh, This is a big one. Uh, Nobody saw this coming. Actually, my father-in-law picked him. And everybody laughed at him at work, at his work. And uh, he's the one laughing now, him, him, and, him and Harmon, a left-hander, known as uh, the consummate grinder, was a very, very good amateur player, excellent junior player, University of Georgia, standout there. But really hasn't, hasn't gotten it airborne for long as a pro. Not only just two wins before this, but the last one was in 2017, and I'm no math major, but that's six years, I'm pretty sure. And he made a little bit of noise at the 2017 U.S. Open, but Kepka ran him over with a final, with a great final round, and and that really was the last we heard of the guy. And he's made a little noise here and there, but never on Sunday afternoon uh, when the kitchen gets its hottest. Uh, and here he is with the claret jug and, uh, lots of guys are wondering what happened. I suppose, uh, it was, it wasn't sexy. It wasn't very suspenseful. It wasn't suspenseful at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people would say this one laid an egg, you know, a lot of people want the stars to win. It's good for business, big TV ratings, but we don't have Tiger Woods around anymore. And Tiger Woods was the closest thing to sure in our industry. And, uh, it's pretty obvious that, uh, you know, Harmon played great. He's a talented player. He does everything pretty well. Mm-hmm. And it was his week. It's hard to explain it otherwise. How about that waggle, Hawk? It makes me a little anxious. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit of a balk. I've got a little bit of a balk in my golf swing. 
Um, I, I don't hear anybody criticizing him. If it was Sergio Garcia, I think uh, a lot of these announcers might get on him for taking so much time over the ball. Well, Sergio had the regrips. This guy, it's part of his routine. He, uh, you know, nobody ever knew he did it because nobody had ever seen him play. <laughs> um, you know, he, he might make a, a highlight reel. You know, I don't know if he's made any whole ones out there. I believe he has actually, but he, he's not a guy that gets a lot of airtime. He's not a lot, a guy that gets a lot of attention, nor does he seek it. Uh, but yeah, the, the pre-shots, yeah, it's a little, it's got a little Keegan Bradley in it. Yeah. It's got, uh, you know, Azinger talked about other guys doing it, but he, the only guy he mentioned was Cal Cavecchia. Uh, Cal didn't come to, to a complete stop with his body until it was time to strike the ball. And not that many guys in, in his era struck it better than Cal. No Cal could really hit it. No question about it. So, yeah. you know, it's, it reminds me of Peter Oost, <laughs> Louis Oosthuizen winning the 2010 British at St. Andrews by a wide margin. Kind of an, a, a guy that is unknown to a vast majority of the of the golfing public, big margin, and we move on. You know, it's, uh, they can't all be the 75 masters partner. No, it's only a few but, of those, but, but when you look at the PGA tour and the major championship season, Hawk, you get rum at the masters, you get Kepka at the PGA, and then you get Wyndham Clark at the U S open and Brian Harmon here. Are the Wyndham Clark and Brian Harmon victories, those types of victories in major championships, is that good for golf when a lot of people turn it off because it's anticlimactic and I don't know who the winner is and it doesn't resonate with me, or is it not good for golf? It's exactly what I'm writing for, for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it good for the game? Well, there have been instances like this, 2003, Ben Curtis wins the British, a complete unknown, a complete unknown, mm -hmm. ranked like 384 in the world. And then Sean McKeel wins Oak Hill, the PGA at Oak Hill, a golf course that was supposed to reward the premium players, the best of the best. Woods is nowhere in, in sight. Uh, no Els, Nicholson, Goose. They, none of those guys make any noise. McKeel wins pretty easily. Back-to-back uh, -back invisible guys, I, I don't want to be mean, uh, but back-to-back -back toilers of obscurity mm -hmm. uh, take the final two majors of the year. It, is it good for business? Look, Mitch, you can't control, you can't influence the competitive element. Bleep happens, right? Stuff happens. Right. That's why it's, that's what the, one of the beauties of sports. Uh, that said, I, I think it's a little... I think it's a bit of a bummer. I think more people would look Rory's become a sort of the, the crowd favorite, but Scheffler's very popular. Rom certainly has his following, uh, Ricky Fowler. You could name, if you went out and you asked a hundred people to pick the three guys, they'd most want to win a major Brian Harmon of those 300 total, uh, <laughs> names, Brian Harmon would get zero unless you talk to Mrs. Harmon. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, let's be real. You know, I'm a journalist. I deal in the truth. I think the truth is, is a subjective matter, but uh, we do our best to interpret it uh, as much through reader and fan reaction as, as more, more in that way than, yeah. than you do by the announcers. I mean, the announcers are 
at the U.S. Open, they were pulling from Rory so hard. It was, uh, I'm surprised my bo- my buddy Azinger didn't pull a muscle in his throat. <laughs> um, you know, this this stuff happens. He, I'll tell you what, he went out and earned it. This is a lot better than somebody losing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you know, the yeah. Vanderbilt thing was comical. Otherwise, there's nothing good in, in guys who, who squander it, you know? Right. I think there'd be a lot of people that would say, Hawk, this is a side effect for how big the game is worldwide. There are just so many terrific players out there. The 140th best player in the field is a really, really, really good player. And because of that, we're going to have majors where Wyndham Clarks and Brian Harmons win. This is not, this is not when Jack played. I mean, I love Jack just like the next guy, but how many guys truly could win a major every time Jack teed it up in one of the four? What, 12 guys? 15, yeah, maybe 15, more than that. Maybe more than that. Yeah, but the, maybe, po- maybe the point 20. is the the point is the point. There are a hundred guys out there that can look at the leaderboard. Straka, Tim. I mean, it's, you go on and on and on. There's so many guys that can win these things. Well, I think in this case, the final leaderboard will be shaped a little bit by the deflation factor of the big three. Uh, Scheffler played himself out of it uh, Friday, the same day that Harmon. Didn't win the tournament Friday. Nobody ever. The only tournament ever won on a Friday was Tiger Woods at the 2000 U.S. Open, mm-hmm. uh, and that was actually a Saturday morning because they had they got fogged up. But uh, you know, Harmon shot a, a crazy low. I think it was 65, and he went out early and he just that was it. tore the place to shreds, and, and nobody came close. But back to the the other point, I think that guy. I don't think they give up, but you know, they don't run around the bases quite as hard. You know, once they're out of it, I think I think that's why we see some crazy margins in Super Bowls or have over the years. Once once you know you're done, it's pretty hard to keep your 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 competitive spirit at a at a premium. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think guys like Grio and Tom Kim, to a certain extent, they're playing for money. They need the place. There's a lot of money. John Rahm doesn't need another 1.2 for finishing fourth. <laughs> You know, right? But I could guarantee you that Seth Straka could use a seven-digiter. Yeah, sure. I guarantee you that. Sure. Let's go back to Rory. Another top ten for him, but now it's an inconceivable hawk. Nine years since he won one. The crazy thing is, you hear nine years, and you might say to yourself, "All right, the guy must have lost his game during that time somewhere along the line. He must have really slumped and fallen to you know seventy-fifth in the world." But quite the, the opposite. He's been one of, if not the greatest player in the world during that nine years. He's winning a bunch. He's winning all over the world. He just can't get to the top at one of the big four. I don't want you to play amateur shrink, Hawk, but is this is this a mental thing? or yeah, How do you explain it? Oh, boy. I don't know how much time you have, but what... One thing, I don't think he's been the best player through those nine years. Uh, Spieth won three majors. Kepka's won okay. five. But he's been one of the top um, three or but four. I, or five I get your players. point. Yeah, he never. I know. Down. Well, he's the most. He's the most impressive player. He okay. drives the ball better than anybody, and that's the shot that serves as judge and jury for the public's perspective on players and how great they are. Mm-hmm. He, especially for his size, but he doesn't make putts. 
when he has to make them. He doesn't seem to have the proper frame of mind. I think he's tried a lot of different things. He's such a good guy, such a nice person. He was raised well. Uh, but you know what DeRocher said about nice guys? They don't always finish last, but they finish T4 a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think that if you if you don't make putts, okay, if, 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 if you don't make putts, you're not going to win major championships. It's that simple. And he doesn't make putts. He gets hot and he burns down the house like he did at Texas a couple of years ago. But it doesn't happen all that often. He he's 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 not winning at a at a clip at a recent clip like Scheffler has or Rom has. I mean, Rom already has what four this year. Yeah. Scheffler's had eighteen straight top fifteens. He won the players. He won the Masters and three others last year. So in the last fifteen sixteen months. He's been awfully, awfully good. Uh, McElroy can't say that. Uh, he's picked up some victories. Even when he won at Quail Hollow uh, in Charlotte, what was it, a year and a half ago, he, he, he looked sloppy doing it. And I think it's a, it's a tough league. You know, you better make putts and you better keep your head and you better keep on going because like J.J. Henry told me, I got, he says to me, Hawk, when I got out here, I'd shoot 66, 65. I'd be like, you know, what's that? 11 under after 36 holes. And I'm thinking, man, I'm in great shape. I get out there. I'm in the third to last group and somebody's already passed me <laughs> and guys are right on my tail. And I par the first eight holes and I'm out of the tournament. Yeah. yeah you got to keep your foot on the, on the accelerator yeah. in this league, uh, unless it's a U.S. Open. And lastly, Wyndham Clark's a pretty good, I think Wyndham Clark could become a, 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 certainly he'll make the Ryder cup this year. I, I, I could see Wyndham Clark becoming a, I don't know, eight, 10 time winner on the tour, oh, but, really? okay. uh, he's still, he's still six away from that. So he's still got a ways to go. Two last ones. And I'll let you go. What the heck happened to Justin Thomas the last year? Boy, that's, uh, you know, funny. He shot 80-plus at back-to-back -back majors. He hasn't done anything since, like, January. He's completely off the map. And yet, Zach Johnson's saying, suggesting that he would still probably, well, he would strongly consider him for a wild-card pick for the Ryder Cup team. And that's crazy. I mean, my editor and I were talking about it. I, you know, Thomas's swing doesn't look right, but I attribute it more to, again, to the mentality. I think he's trying his hardest not to completely lose his mind, blow a stack. You know, we all see how emotional he gets. He's hard on himself. John Cook was a, I love John Cook, friend of mine, but he, he beat himself up out there, you know, he, and it, it, it took its toll. I think Thomas expects great things. He's accomplished great things uh, at times during his career but now he's in his first spot of bother and it's some serious bother he needs to uh you know he can't really take any time off he's got to play just to get into the playoffs because right. the playoffs are right. cut down to 70 this year so i think these la next three or four weeks will really tell us more because this season is about to end i know you will uh, write a lot for sports illustrated in the morning read on the media angle and how these how these big major championships and big tournaments are covered by 
by television. You like NBC. You like Paul Lazinger. You just mentioned uh-huh. him. You just mentioned him. Well, I feel like when I watch social media that people have turned on Azinger a little bit. It feels like that when he first came onto the scene, people loved Azinger and not so much anymore. Am I wrong about that? I don't know if you're wrong or right. I think that when Azinger started, it was, you know, like 15, 16 years ago and social media really didn't exist. I think that, well, I can't say it on the on, on a podcast or to, in the public, but they get some liquid courage. You know, it's the same thing. You see a guy in a bar, he has a half dozen beers, and now he's a tough guy. And I think that's what you get on social media. They can hide behind the computer yeah. and talk about how crappy Azinger was. I think Azinger does a, a good job. He's not as outspoken as he once was, but I think that also comes with age, and he's probably had some people. I know he has because I'm good friends with Azinger. People come up to him and they tell him how much he sucks, and I, that's hard. I, you know, I've dealt with that. I dealt with that when I was at the Golf Channel. People making fun of me, and you know, it's part of the business. It's. Uh, I think Azinger does a good job. I think he. He overstepped it a little bit at the British uh, at the uh, U.S. Open. I gave him a pass on it. I think he's entitled to it. I think uh, I'd rather have a, a, a an analyst who takes chances and misses than an Ian Baker Finch who says absolutely nothing. Television is easy to do and extremely difficult to do well. Asinger's done a pretty good job, especially for a self-proclaimed redneck. Uh, he's he's done pretty well. Uh, if people don't like him, that's pretty much part of the part of the deal. Some people don't like anything. <laughs> like me. NBC is better than CBS at doing golf? By a mile right now. By Seven shots up. Seven shots up. Okay. Well, there's nobody that I'd rather talk to after a major, before a major, in the golf season, outside the golf season. I've always enjoyed your work. I'll tell you that to your face. I'll tell you that with liquid courage. <laughs> I'll tell you that behind my computer when you're on the golf channel. I watched. When Hawkins was talking on the Golf Channel, I watched. Most of the times, I don't watch. I like what Chambly has to say, but and I like that show, but I most of the stuff on I the Golf you. Channel, I can't watch. Ladies and gentlemen, John yeah. Hawkins, always good to the podcast. Thank you, Hawk. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Anytime, Mitch. Let's talk before the Ryder Cup. You got it. Hey, look who it is. It's Lindsay Schwartz of Daniel's Broiler. Lindsay, are the restaurants still thriving with you on the golf course three or four days a week? Hey, Mitch, good good to talk to you. Yeah, I wish I was on three or four days a week. Come but, on uh, now. But I, yeah, I can't complain. Come I, on, on now. You're telling I'm, me you're not on the golf course three or four days a week? I'm on maybe like one or two days a no, week. No, you're but, not. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes three or four. All right. I always focus our attention on some obvious qualities of Daniel's like the steaks and seafood, the incredible ambiance and service. But here's something we never talk about or don't talk about enough. Desserts. Now, can we talk about desserts and make people in our audience want to go to Daniel's just for the desserts? I think so. I mean, we you're right. We haven't talked about it much. I'll tell you what. I'm a big dessert guy, so I would love to talk about okay. desserts. I'm not a big dessert guy. I'm not a big drinker, but I want to hear you talk about the desserts at Daniel's. Tell me, please. I'm a dessert guy and a drinker, but, but <laughs> let's, let's talk about, let's just talk about desserts. I'll tell you what, you know, we've been around a long time since 1980. We've got a handful of desserts that have been around since day one that are just old school, old time favorites. 
and they're so good that we we never change them. The, we've got a New York style cheesecake, which I think you have to have if you're a steakhouse. We have a creme brulee, which is awesome. Again, you have to have it. The other one that we've had forever is the coconut fudge sundae. I may have talked about it a little bit, but it is so good. I mean, it, and we do it differently. It's a, it's almost like an upside down sundae. So we line the bowl with fudge and refrigerate that. So you got this thick layer of fudge on the bottom. And then we put the delicious uh, coconut ice cream on top of that. And I mean, people have loved that for over 40 years. It's awesome. Do you have an ambulance sitting outside? to take me directly to the hospital after I have that dessert? <laughs> we should. I don't know. We, we know where all the closest uh, hospitals are to each uh, restaurant, so, so you don't have to worry about that. But but then, you know, we also have some some of the newer ones. We've got a chocolate decadence cake that is relatively new. It is what it is. It's a decadent chocolate cake served with vanilla ice cream. A newer one is a peach melba butter cake. So butter cake is something that we've seen at other steakhouses around the country. And then I got to mention also just uh, it sounds simple, but just the ice cream. We, we use Olympic Mountain Ice Cream, which is a company, family-owned company that's been around as long as we have. And uh, you really just see their stuff in restaurants. You don't see it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And they come up with these amazing, unique flavors. They kind of pick the flavor and, and we serve it. But like, for example, there's a brown butter almond toffee, which is killer, strawberry rhubarb pie, white chocolate espresso flake with caramel swirl. Jeez. I could keep going. It's, wow. uh, it, it's, it's been a staple for us and, and a great partnership for us. And we just love it. My God, I ask you about your steaks, your seafood, your ambiance, and you give me eight seconds. I didn't know I need to be asking you about dessert all these years. I told you, I've known you 20 years. You know, you, just, you can't figure out the right questions. I'm a dessert guy. Let's go. Ah, Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. Sometimes we miss the, the real takeaways for our own lives, right? And that was the point of the book is uh, we're dazzled by them, we're awed by them, but, you know, what can we take home, right? And, you know, we work at desks from the neck up. And so, you know, are there lessons there that are applicable? And there are if we look at them closely enough and, and if we stop being quite so dazzled by the shine of the trophies. Our next guest has been one of the great sports writers in America for a long, long time. I don't want to date her. Books, awards, you name it, she's accomplished it. 2005, she was the first woman to be inducted into the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. Her latest work, The Right Call, what sports teach us about work and life. And I'll have you know, Sally Jenkins, before you even say word one, that I've already learned something about this interview. Ah, and what would that be? I learned that Ralph Waldo Emerson is believed to be the first person to ever use the expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree <laughs> in, 18, in 1839. And I'm teaching you the very same thing because never was it more applicable than my next guest, Sally. Oh, Jenkins. you're you're very kind, uh, Dan Jenkins. My dad. He was a great writer. Uh, you could use chestnuts too, can't you? <laughs> you can if you'd yeah. like. Yes. Yeah. Oh dear. So the name of the book is "The Right Call." All of us sports fans are mesmerized by our favorite athletes, but there's a lot more than we can actually learn if we want to put aside that 
fandom for just a second that could help us every day in our lives. Well, you know, it's been nagging at me for years that uh, the idea, the feeling, the nagging feeling that I was watching something more important than just entertainment. When I watch Peyton Manning as, you know, in the middle of his Hall of Fame career, making decisions on the football field, it began to occur to me like that's something that's really important, being able to make a decision in, in the maelstrom of NFL action and under all that pressure. And, you know, who wouldn't want to be able to do that in their own life? And so I started to ask the question, is there anything that, that I'm watching that's applicable to those of us who are working from the neck up sitting at a desk? Mm -hmm. You've done 11 books before this. This is number 12, I think. Two good ones. <laughs> Did you, <laughs> were you inspired? Did you find yourself inspired by maybe some of the previous deep dives into people that you've written about over the years? Is that the inspiration behind all of this? Sure. I mean, working for the Washington Post, I've gone all over the world. I've, I've interviewed everybody and I just didn't want all that material to go to waste. You know, I felt like if you do believe you're watching something more important than pure entertainment here, you've got to write it down. You've got to, you've got to get it clear in your own head what it is you think you're watching. If you believe there's a deep intelligence going on out there, whether it's, you know, Andy Murray on a tennis court or Roger Federer or Martina Navratilova, or it's Laird Hamilton riding a, a really big wave, you know, or Steph Curry or LeBron James, you know, what are they really doing out there from a neurological standpoint, from a decisional and executive function standpoint? And so that's where I really wanted to drill down in this book. Sally, do we as fans overrate talent? We always yes. say God-given talent. Maybe no. that's maybe that's a cop-out to describe why we aren't in the same situation. Maybe it's a it's an excuse that we all use for the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, you know, everyone could play in the NBA at Steph Curry's level. What I argue in the book, and I, I don't think it's an argument, I think it's, it's absolute fact, if you find the thing you truly love and want to go all in on every single day, you will perform up to a Steph Curry level. You have to find it and practice at it, learn your craft. But if you identify that thing and put all your chips in the middle of the table, yeah, you can absolutely perform at that level. Talent is fractional. If I've learned one thing since I became a sports writer back in 1982, it is that talent is an absolutely fractional part of this equation. Mm. Obviously failure, that word is a key element of your book. How do athletes, the great ones, diagnose and handle failure better than you and I do? Well, I won't throw you into the mix, Sally. Better than I do, Mitch Levy does, on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, I mean, I think the key here is that I, I used to process it a lot differently, and I changed but from watching all these athletes. Oh, really? How so, did you change? Yeah. yeah. Well, I just took some lessons from them. You know, I started, I, I told myself, like, I choked a couple times at the typewriter on deadline or in the middle of a big piece for Sports Illustrated. I, I specifically remember I was assigned to write about Billie Jean King. It was my first big story for Sports Illustrated magazine. And I was choking my guts out at the typewriter. And I got really mad at myself. And I thought, you know what? Never again. Like, I'm going to learn what they do to perform so that when I'm in this situation next time, I'll be more comfortable. Really? And I'll, and I'll have more flow as a writer. And, uh, you know, if you take your talent as seriously or your abilities or your ambition half as seriously as an athlete does, you know, why wouldn't you start investigating this stuff and try to apply it to your own craft and profession? So, yeah, I used to deal with pressure a lot differently. I used to, uh, my habits have completely changed, partly because I've been influenced by the people 
I've been covering. Look, everybody forgets that Peyton Manning was, uh, I wouldn't say on the brink of failure early in his career, but I would say he was on the brink of not fulfilling his promise and his contract and his draft status. Okay. By his third year in the league, his record as a starter was 32 and 32, and he led the league in interceptions. And it wasn't until Tony Dungy and Jim Caldwell got a hold of him and corrected some flaws that Peyton Manning really becomes Peyton Manning. And as he told me for the book, he said, you know, at that juncture of his career, he said, it was like, okay, who am I going to be? One of the things they did was they analyzed some footwork problems that he had that was contributing to his interceptions and some judgment problems that he had. And tell everybody what they did. They threw bags, right? They threw yeah, weight bags yeah. at him, right? Tell well, us. The, the first thing that they did was they reviewed every single interception he had ever thrown. So here's this golden boy sitting there having to watch every bad play he's ever made. And he threw a like, lot. He threw a lot of them in the first couple of years. A lot. Oh of my. Them. Yeah. Oh my God. I think yeah. two of his first three years he led the league, right? I mean, yeah. like thirty some interceptions. Right. I mean, literally two a game. So he sits there with his coaches watching every single interception. But Peyton said not only that, but he said we watched a second more hidden tape, which was tape of all the balls I threw that should have been intercepted, but I just got lucky. You know, mm. the defender dropped the ball mm -hmm. or, you know, the, some guy made a great catch mm -hmm. to bail me out. Right. Um, and they, they looked at all that and then they looked for commonalities and they said, okay, wh where do we see real problems here? And one of the things was his feet got very sort of jackhammery and unstable when defensive linemen were closing in. So they designed this drill where they would throw heavy sandbags at his feet in practice. <laughs> they would just hurl these bags at, at Peyton's legs, you know, and make him learn to set his feet and, and get a more stable base before yeah. he threw. Oh, incredible stuff. How about the coaches, the great coaches, Bill Belichick, Andy Reid. You did books on Pat Summit and Joe Paterno. I think it was Pat Summit who said, no one cares. Give me the, Nobody, the expression. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. What does that mean? So, well, it means also what, what Tom Brady said in the book, which is that if you don't care about the people you're working with, you're hosed because they'll turn against you. They, they won't work with you. They just won't do it. I mean, so every decision is actually enacted through other people, particularly in offices or in organizationally. Even the most brilliant strategist has to go through other people. Other people have to execute the right call and they have to execute it in the right way and with energy. And Pat Riley of the Miami Heat says a really fascinating thing. If you don't trust the leader of the organization, if you think their intentions are bad, and we saw this with Urban Meyer, we've seen it with Matt Patricia, coaches with real high profiles who became real failures. What happens, according to Pat Riley, is that everybody in the organization starts subtly dialing down their effort. They just start to just not give everything they have, and they want to enroll others in their own cycle of disappointment. And so you see this deterioration, this group deterioration. Mm -hmm. So again, like Tom Brady said, and like Pat Summit said, followers have to trust your intentions in order for you to have any success. If they think your intentions aren't good, or if they think you don't know what you're doing, they'll frag you, basically. It's called a leveling mechanism. Uh, they'll take you out. Followers actually have a lot more power in the organization than the individual leaders. They really do. It's a it's a mistake that a lot of followers make to believe they're powerless. The name of the book is The Right Call. You said in a recent interview, uh, Sally, that Belichick is much different in a one-on-one -on -one setting than he is in the press conference environment that yeah. we've all grown tired of. Let's put it that way. Explain. Yeah. 
What was he like? Oh, it, you know, I've only talked to him once on the one to one, but it, it was it was so surprising. I was I was nonplussed. He's very courtly, very courteous. Um, you know, a, a much easier laugher than you would ever imagine. Uh-huh. You know, he looks so forbidding in those press conferences. Yeah, and he's he's so sort of laconic, and he's really playing a game with the press when he does that. His whole thing is he understands the value of withholding. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic. It works for him. Players crave his approval. He withholds it. You know, he never gave Tom Brady the full approval that Brady craved. And it's it worked for a lot of years. It really drove Brady for a lot of years. Uh, and, and the same is true with the rest of his players. And he does that with the press also. But when you do get him in a more relaxed setting, he's he's very charming, very reflective. He's certainly intelligent about organizational dynamics. And that that's what was so interesting to talk to him about is how you get an organization with multiple components all on the same page operating in such a flawless way. So let me get a Sally Jenkins opinion here. How do you feel about Belichick and what's happening to his legacy or not happening to his legacy post Tom Brady? Well, first of all, I think you have to realize that it's it's really, really hard to get all those components in place at the same time. And the quarterback is always the most elusive component on an NFL team. I mean, there's a lot of really, really good organizations that just haven't gone over the top because of quarterback issues. So Belichick had a philosophy, which was to go younger sooner. And I think simply miscalculated when he believed that Brady didn't have four or five really great years left in him. Um, you know, and I think that when Brady felt that this is just my own projection, by the way, I think when, I think Brady interpreted that as a certain type of disloyalty and so wanted a fresh start, wanted out. I, I, I think that they probably should have made Brady the deal that he wanted and it all would have been a happier ending. Sure, sure. And, you know, I, let's face it, the Patriots, I think that Belichick also, did something that was uncharacteristic of him, maybe partly in reaction to the the Brady issue, which is he held on to a lot of players. That roster sort of aged for the first time. And the Patriots got older for the first time under Belichick's tenure. Uh, I think because he had developed some real ties of affection to some players in that locker room. There were guys in there that he didn't want to get rid of sooner rather than later. When so it, that's my analysis. When it comes to Belichick and Andy Reid and you did Steve Kerr for the book, the interesting distinction here is that high-powered businessmen and women that make these weighty decisions every day of their lives, they do it behind closed doors while the people we're talking about kind of stand in front of all of us and make these decisions and hopefully the right calls. Well, yeah, it's a great opportunity. And it, it's just, that was an insight, I think, that I gained from covering all these games, you know, watching an Andy Reid on the sideline make fourth down calls, you know, just watching decisional processes in these complex organizations, watching Steve Kerr on an NBA sideline is really pretty instructive because, you know, you don't get to watch Bob Iger run Disney, no. right? Especially in the last couple of months, I'd like right, to. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, they, you know, they may show up once a year at a shareholder meeting, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. the rest of the time, you know, they're in boardrooms and you, you don't, you have to study their decision-making by extension with sort of the public uh, fallout of what they do. Whereas, you know, we're, there's a masterclass going on right in front of us of organizational leadership and uh, sometimes poor leadership or great leadership. But, mm-hmm. but you know, 
to watch an NFL coach get 53 guys on the same page each and every week, uh, especially when the, the battle plan, the game plan, and the, the essential organizational strategy has to change so dramatically every week is a really, really interesting exercise in decisional excellence. Off the beaten path a little bit. You were the first to interview Joe Paterno after the horrific Sandusky-Penn State scandal. He reached out to you, as I recall, Reminisce about that conversation with us for a second and how you choose, how Sally Jenkins chooses to remember Joe Paterno's very complicated now legacy. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was very, very ill when I talked to him. He didn't live more than a few days uh, after the interview. Uh, he ended up in the hospital pretty soon, uh, a matter of days. I know that. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very, very ill. Paterno. He, he could be so charming and obviously a, a lovely, intelligent man, but I do believe that he lied in the interview when he said, now it's possible because he was so sick, his memory was, you know, an issue, but he basically said, you know, I, things like I never heard of sex and a man. Um, he said that he had absolutely no inkling ever, ever, ever that Sandusky could have been capable of this sort of thing. And then it turns out that there were these emails uh, between university officials going back years. And so my conclusion about Joe Paterno is, is that, you know, his entire legacy should not be judged on this one issue. I think that child molestation is such a complex event and to blame every single person who didn't see it coming is just not the right thing to do, not the right way to handle it. I mean, these people are expert in cultivating trust, both in adults and children. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I feel about it. You know, I think Joe Paterno was a good man and a great coach and was rightly beloved. Uh, I don't think he was 100% uh, honest about the Sandusky thing. Last one for you, Sally. As you promote the right call, we've got Wimbledon going on around us. And I have to get in a tennis question because I, and I want to say to our audience, if you have a few minutes, you've got to read Sally's recent piece on Martina Navratilova and Chrissy Everett. Oh, my God. And I, I know I just called her Chrissy. Sorry. Chris Everett. Um, Chrissy's okay. She likes Chrissy. Oh, uh, it is a must-read. It was such a beautiful piece, Allie. Such a great job you did. I, I don't follow tennis all that much anymore since we don't have much American skin in the men's game for the last 25, 30 years since the characters of the game like McEnroe and Connors. But Novak Djokovic interests me. He's going down as the biggest winner of them all. But there seems to be this disconnect with sports fans that isn't true of the adored Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. At first, I thought Djokovic embraced that. But in recent years, I've noticed almost an about turn. It feels to me like he's trying to reverse it and endear himself to the fans. Do you notice any of that? Do you think about any of that? What do you say I about do. all that? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I think he would like to be loved as well as respected. Who who wouldn't? You know, he reminds me a bit of Martina Navratilova and her longtime battle to win, you know, crowd affection. It came finally, but it came kind of late. And I think part of it is the style of play, so physical and so overwhelming. 
and they're always the favorite, you know, unless uh, they're on the court against like a Rafa Nadal or somebody like that. So I, some of it is just always being the overdog, frankly. And some of it is Western audiences probably not just lack the sort of familiarity with Eastern European players, but his story is fascinating. His, he, I think is going to win the grand slam this year. Uh, I, that's a bold prediction yeah. in the middle of Wimbledon, yeah. but he should win Wimbledon and come into New York with a shot at the slam. He came close. He, he His only issue, I think, in the last year was overreaching a bit. So in, in the Olympic year, he wanted to win an Olympic gold medal in addition to everything else. And it was it was all sort of a bridge too far. But I think he's got a real shot at it this year. You know, he, you, you mentioned Martina. You know who you remind me of a little bit in this regard? And it's before my time a little bit. But Jack Nicklaus. When Jack Nicholas was on the rise, Arnold Palmer was everything to everybody. And Nicholas was a hated figure. And he almost played to that. The steely-eyed, blonde-haired assassin from Columbus, Ohio. And Palmer was kind of Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. But as the years went on, you could see the softening. There came a time where the family man, Jack Nicholas and Barbara Nicholas and all the kids, he wanted to be loved by the public. And I see the same change in Djokovic that we saw in Nicholas. I, I think there's truth to that. Part of it is I think that the audience senses the steel in Djokovic. And steel in a competitor is certainly what Jack had. Had definitely, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and so, when you sense that steel, the audience is in awe of it and appreciates it. But it's hard to warm to initially. Yes. And as, as Djokovic looks more and more human to the audience, you know, I, you know, he brought his little boy out on the court with him right. the other day right. during a practice session and stuff. As people grow to know him as a human, I think he'll get the affection that he deserves. He appears to be a very nice man. There's no reason in the world he shouldn't have, you know, the adoration of the of the audience as well as the respect. The name of the book is The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. She's been doing a great job for a long time. And this is book number 12. I think it's at least 10 great ones. She says two or three. <laughs> She's Sally Jenkins on Mitch Unfiltered. Thank you, Sally. Thanks for the visit and good luck with the book. Thank you. I loved being here. It was great. Hey, let's check in with the president of Zeke's Pizza, Mr. Dan Black. Hiya, Dan. How's everything going over there? Doing good, Mitch. How are the eastern spots, the two spots that are furthest away from headquarters, Spokane and Boise doing? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. We didn't quite know how difficult that was going to be and how much the brand would be known and stuff. And it's been great. The new location on the outskirts of Boise and Eagle is just going crazy. And we were happy that, you know, there's a lot of people that knew about Zeke's down there. And, you know, there's a lot of people that don't still, and, and we're working on that. But the location's been busy. It's got a great patio. So as summer kicks in there, it's getting even more amped up. Same thing in Spokane. They have a great patio. It got really popular for Gonzaga basketball games mm -hmm. in particular and your favorite basketball <laughs> coach on earth. Um, but, you know, so no, we're, we've been, we've been really happy with the two locations that are, you know, really outside of our core. So, so far so good. I need a summertime beer selection. I understand you've got two new collaborations in your vast library at Zeke's. Yeah, no, we've got two 
awesome ones this summer. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, what we call collabs a lot, which is just a fancy term for saying that we have relationships with most of the great breweries in the Northwest and they often brew beers that are exclusive to us. And we call those collabs. And so when we say collab, it just means that it's a beer that really you can only get at Zeke's and a brewery. One's already going, it's called the Reach Pilsner. And it's got a good backstory. I think I've mentioned that Tom and Doug founded Zeke's because they didn't like working for Arthur Anderson and writing code. And of course they knew that the internet and computers would never be big anyway. So they started <laughs> started a pizza company. But you know, part of the reason they started their own business so they could windsurf at the gorge. And the reach actually refers to a stretch of the Columbia where they windsurf. And our partner on that is a brewery called Ferment. The head brewer down there is really great at Pilsners. And we like Pilsners because they're easy drinking, they're low alcohol. Even you could handle a couple of those. And so, uh, so the Reach Pilsner's going right now. It's an easy drinking summer beer. And then we're doing a re-rack of the one we did with Fremont Brewing last summer. So in July, we'll have another version of the Z-Side IPA, which will definitely be too aggressive for you, Mitch. So stay away from that one. <laughs> so yeah, we got the Pilsner going right now, the Reach Pilsner, and then we got Z-Side coming up in July, and they're both really good. It's quite a selection of beer at Zeke's Pizza. You know Zeke's Pizza for, for their great Northwest-style crust and pizza, but boy, what a beer selection that continues to grow and grow. We love Zeke's Pizza, an incredible partner of Mitch Unfiltered, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Other Stuff segment, episode 247 with Hot Shot Scott. I told you we're currently going through uh, the, the softball, trying to find a team world. And yeah. I had to read something funny that my friend sent me. He's got two daughters in the club world. Yeah. He calls it Softball Survivor. Have you ever watched the TV show Survivor? I have, yes. Side, a long time ago. Side conversations, secrecy, strategy, everyone holding their cards close to their vest. It's awful. <laughs> I just love that. It is softball survival. It's probably the same with baseball, trying to, you know, trying to find which team, who's going to go where. You're, you want to go there, but that's a good team. Oh, we awful. never really had that Sucks. with Brett. It just seemed like whenever he got into an organization, they just said, hey, I hope you'll be on our team next year. That's great. Hope you'll be so on our easy. team next year. Yeah. Hope you'll be on our team next year, oh. which is, of course, not what he's doing for his final year next summer. So you got to go find a new team. No, he just has decided to play on a new team. Oh. A new old team. It's a long story. I don't want to get into but it. He, but he's already, he already has an offer. Yeah, he's, okay, he's, he's just accepted. So yeah. you don't have to go to tryouts no. and wait for your phone to ring no, and who's no, going no, here no, no, and this no. team sucks and no. oh my God, <laughs> it's awful. It's terrible. Uh, Try maybe Piper can play on his team with him. Maybe he could do a package deal. Have the they coach, seem to want Brett a lot. Have the coach give me a call. You need a catcher? We she can do it. We can always use <laughs> Who a can't? catcher. How's her arm in a second? All right, other stuff segment. I'll start. Do you remember the rumor about Golden Tate and Russell Wilson? I do. and I The yes. urban myth, the legend. It's weird because I knew I worked with somebody who worked with someone or who oh, knew someone. At the courthouse. And they told two friends. Yes. And so on. Essentially. So on. Shampoo commercial. Th there was video of it. What were you going to say? Well, there was a podcast this week with KJ Wright as the host. Okay. And G. Scott, in which Golden Tate came on and talked a lot about the rumored relationship between him and... Russell Wilson's ex-wife that yep. apparently soured Russell Wilson, obviously, and meant the end of the run 
for Golden Tate here in Seattle. Everybody's heard that by now. Can, yeah, I, yeah. can I assume that everybody in our audience knows what we're talking about? I, I, I wouldn't, no? I wouldn't was assume it, was that. It a, no? No, I don't think everyone knows that there was a rumor about Golden Tate and Ashton is her name, yeah. Ashton. There was a rumor out there. This is Golden Tate on the podcast. There was a rumor out there that I was not coming back to the Seahawks because Ashton, Russell's wife at the time, had an affair with me, which was completely not true, Golden Tate said to KJ Wright. In fact, my wife now, Elise, and Ashton were best friends at the time and still are really good friends. In fact, Ashton came to our wedding. Russell and I had conversations about his future in regards to that, Tate said. So when I heard that, I was kind of like, that's kind of creative and kind of funny. But then it picked up steam, and I feel like it was never defined properly or defended properly, he says. It really made me angry because now everyone's just coming at me completely sideways, and no one's defending me. It was this whole big situation, and I just felt like the scapegoat in a way. I was bitter for years about that rumor. Years, y'all. Every time I saw Russell, I'd be so angry, I would say to him, defend me. How could you let this happen? Yeah. And he never did. Huh. That's Golden Tate on KJ Wright's podcast. Now, first of all, do we need another podcast in the world? <laughs> Jesus God. <laughs> well, the only reason they did it is because we skipped last Monday. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Frank and Fife. They did it for Frank and Fife. What do you think? Do you believe him? That there was nothing there? You I take think I do. Word? Yeah, do you? Okay. I think I do. Yeah, that was a big story. I mean, I think I was, where was I working at the it time? It was a but... big story. Then why do you think that nobody really knows, the, that not everybody knows in our audience the, the story that we're referring to? Kind of a, a big meaning it was It was a juicy. rumor. It was really juicy, and it felt like there was something there. I don't know. I, I've, I heard all I kinds just, of I rumors. just read to you the transcript of what he said on the KJ Ray right. podcast. Are you saying you don't buy it? He's saying Ashton and my wife were friends at the time. She came to our wedding. Yeah. There was never anything between us. Russell refused to defend me and come out and cle clear the record. I heard stories about... And I was bitter for forever about it. Cameras and teddy bears and bedrooms to try to catch the action. I heard really? all kinds See, of details. See, I haven't heard that. Yeah. You must have heard that like on the T-Man show. Was Russell here during the T-Man years? Don't I don't know if he was or not. You're always causing trouble. You're <laughs> a troublemaker. Have. I told you I love the drama. I don't know. Yes, I have no reason not to believe him, but it just felt like there was something there with that. So while we're talking about Seahawks receivers, I need you to tell me, give me, and don't make fun of me, just give me an education of who Normani is. Am I saying that right? Normani. N-O-R-M-A-N-I, confirming her relationship with NFL top wide receiver DK Metcalf. I don't know that I know. Over the Normani. weekend, the former Fifth Harmony member posted a photo to her Instagram story of her of herself smiling while Seahawks wide receiver DK Metcalf kissed her on the cheek. Ooh. Normani and Metcalf attended Seahawks wide receiver Tyler Lockett's wedding. Former Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson was also at the wedding and shared a video of Normani and Metcalf dancing together. I would have thought for sure you'd be able to tell me about DK Metcalf's new girlfriend. I know she's a singer, but I don't really know much about her. Well, you didn't even know she was a singer when I said her name. Now you know she's a singer. Yeah. I, I know What's the name, Fifth but Harmony? I don't know. That I don't know. Is, you don't that, know a, Fifth is that a group? I guess. Former member of Fifth Harmony. I don't know. You're not, you're not helping me with my pop culture. <laughs> I know. Normally, normally I'm, I'm a little better than this. But okay. yeah, Normani, it sounds familiar. Okay. I know she's a singer. but Well, yeah, I've seen know. pictures of her and DK, and they look smitten with one another. Well, good for I him. I don't know that anybody says that anymore, but I'm saying it. 
They look smitten with one another. Hopefully DK's changed his ways from some of the texts that we read at one point. Wasn't wasn't he the one that was trying to make threesomes happen and I don't know anything about Oh Wasn't yeah. there some a story that yeah, got out? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully he's changed his ways and he's trying to settle down a little bit there, know. DK. Or maybe either. she wants to be involved. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> yeah, well, who, I don't what do I care? Maybe All that's right. what attracted her to him. I don't know. All right, Kevin Costner's wife's update. Ex-wife. Are you 129,000 a month. Yes? No. Yes. 192? But she was... 192, not 129. I think it was 192. 192. But she was seen vacationing on the big island of Hawaii with one of Kevin's friends. Oh. Nice. Don't tell me it was Golden Tate. (laughs) No, it wasn't. Okay. She was at a swanky resort with a guy named Josh Connor. He's a wealthy finance guy, a friend of Kevin's who lives very close to the Costner family in California. Got it. And uh, she's out vacationing with him. Good Lord. Okay. Anyway, she has to repay Kevin $1.5 million that he gave her to find a new place, according to the prenup. In addition, she have, she, she'd have to pay his attorney's fees that were incurred in I defending the prenup. So it just continues it. to get ugly. The Washington NFL team yep. has new ownership. Did you know that? Have you been following the news? The sale has gone through. It did. It's been finalized. Bad guy Dan Snyder is out. Good guys, Josh Harris... Mitchell Rails, the guy who used to own the radio station I worked for in D.C., mm. Magic Johnson and others are the new ownership group to the tune of something like $6 billion. Jeez. Lots of changes are coming, including another name change. Really? Maybe. Magic Johnson was asked about it. He said everything's on the table when asked about the potential of changing the commander's nickname again. Mm. We will see where we are With the name, there was a recent survey in the nation's capital. 49% of the people surveyed that are football fans in the nation's capital said they either disliked or hated the name Washington Commanders. And by accident or on purpose, Josh Harris, the main guy in the ownership group, referred to them as the Redskins like one or two or three times, there's actually some thought that they would try to bring the Redskins' name back despite being offensive. There's some thought to that, but there's other thoughts that they just don't like the Commanders and the Commanders were a Dan Snyder thing Mm. and they're going to change it again from Commanders to something else not named Redskins. Where are you on that? I think people probably just don't like anything new. It could have been any name. They probably would have hated it the first time out. You know, Commanders is a little weak. I don't love it either. It does feel a little weak. Okay. So I'd be cool with a name change. Okay. You probably don't want to go back to that old one. Just a little advice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you need, you need that heat as the new owners. Maybe sit that one out. Okay. All right, University of Kansas quarterback Jalen Daniels pulled up to Big 12 Media Day with something far cooler around his neck than you've ever seen. Did you see this? No. It's a mini TV. Me, NIL money. Well, yeah. yeah, speaking of NIL money. Yeah. So It wasn't seen- a Mercedes for 250000 was it? Uh, no, it wasn't, okay. but it was around uh, 50000 for a really? ne- for a necklace. A necklace? He plays at Kansas football, yes. So it's a necklace. That, so you've seen Apple Watches. I have. It's essentially, have it's like an Apple Watch screen with diamonds yeah. all the way around it. Oh. And it plays four minutes of his highlights. <laughs> That's all it does. It's actually pretty good. Four minutes of highlights on a loop, and he, he puts it on... Um, What's that? It's on a necklace. I forgot what that kind of... Uh, it's a Cuban link. Okay. So it's on a Cuban link necklace. Sits right there. And it just plays his highlights as you're talking to him for four minutes. Any chance he's going to wear that during the game? <laughs> it's on a loop. Of course he will. So according to to him, it cost around $50,000. He's really good. 
Yeah, he is really good. I don't but... know if you watched him. I watched Kansas a few times during their like 6-0 and start last year, which was like the talk of the college football world because yeah. they're never any good and their coach is really good. And this guy is – and then he got hurt. Jalen Daniels. He's really good. He's a really good college football player. So Well, you better be pretty good reason. to put your highlights around your neck that run all day long. You better be good. I have my greatest moments from KJR <laughs> oh, on, my, on my phone. Yeah. That's whenever anybody calls, I hear like me and Bino. <laughs> For like two seconds? Wendy's, ketchup or mustard? <laughs> Hello? That's it. <laughs> Legendary Major League Baseball player Fred McGriff is in the news. Oh, I remember the crime dog. You do. But you don't remember Drew Bledsoe. That's right. You don't remember who was number one and number two between Ryan Leaf and Cougars. I just, I think block out. I just can't. Yeah, that just leaves Maybe my Maybe you're my right. Memory. Maybe Peyton Manning was two. No, Ryan Leaf. he wasn't. Oh, Peyton went number one. I, yeah. That's what I Would have been thought much funnier had Leaf gone number one. <laughs> Fred McGriff, one of the top sluggers in the 1990s. Boy, was he. Who'd he play for? Who's he going to go into the Hall of Fame? What cap is he going to be wearing? Was you he know, on that, multiple that's teams? Always a, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's always a big deal. Is he a brave? course yeah i think that's what i, I love the, most. the braves he was a brave but okay. who else uh mcgriff was on blue jays 1986 to 2004 he played for six different teams including the tampa bay devil rays the atlanta braves the toronto blue jays and he had a hell of a problem trying to figure out or whoever it is that decides these things yeah what cap he would be wearing when he's enshrined or yeah. You know, forever and ever. He'll be long gone. People will be going to the Hall of Fame seeing the picture of the crime dog, Fred McGriff. It's going to be blank. Really? There will be no logo on his cap because he didn't want to offend any of the great stops in his Major League Baseball career. Now, I think, do you remember the old commercials, the Tom Amansky videos of him at first base? No. Hi, I'm I'm Fred. Come on. You don't remember the Tom? He should be wearing a (laughs) Tom. God, I wish I knew what you were talking about. I thought this was going to be a great joke, and it falls on deaf ears. Hey, welcome to the club, buddy. Oh. Tom Amansky. You don't remember the Tom Amansky fielding videos for youths that are playing? Oh. They were always on TV. 1-800-257-1234. That's (laughs) 1-800. It was always Fred McGriff. It was always on late at night. I would see it. I swear. Yeah. I remember the the Fred McGriff. It was always him. They would be throwing into buckets. Yeah, that's right. Fred McGriff. (laughs) He had that terrible looking hat. Always. It was really hot. So now you remember. Totally remember. 1-800-257-1234. That's 1-800-257-1234. The Tom Amansky videos. I always remember thinking. That's the hat he should be wearing. I remember thinking, McGriff's a good player, but of all the major league players they go after for instructional videos, that's the one? Well, just the fact that a Hall of Famer was willing to do that for Kyle. Yeah, maybe that's it's more that, I guess. Oh. <laughs> Anything for a buck. All right, Tiger Woods is no uh, longer being sued. So Your buddy well. Tiger. Yeah. No longer being sued for allegedly cooking well, up a... That's old news. Yeah, she dropped the... About the ex-girlfriend? The, yeah. is, that, is that old news? Yeah. Erica Herman? Look at you. Yeah. You recently dropped her $30 yeah, million dollar lawsuit. Golden Tate now. Oh, boy. Everyone is. <laughs> Sheesh. Are you uh, paying attention at all to the hazing messiness at Northwestern? What's going on no. there? No. I haven't seen that, no. Yeah, you have. Go on. A couple of weeks ago, they fired their head football coach, Pat Fitzgerald, one of the best or one of the most highly thought of college football coaches because there was sexually explicit hazing going on for years amongst his team. <sighs> And first he said he didn't know what the hell you're talking you know, he didn't know what about oh, now. It turns no. out he was very much aware. And everybody who talks says now, oh, it was worse than it's even being reported. It was oh. awful. So he got fired. Now the baseball coach has gotten fired at Northwestern. Jim Foster, he was engaging in 
bullying and abusive behavior. It's just, Jeez. it's just a and it's Northwestern. It's, it's a good like school, good school. Yeah, that was Megan's safe school. Good, good school. <laughs> she did visit. Brent Musburger went to Northwestern. Oh, did he? I visited Northwestern. Wow. It was one of my. I was down to about three when I did the hats. Yes, I had the right. press conference. And no I one actually, <laughs> because of Brent Musburger, yeah. I'll have you know, because of Brent Musburger, when I was a high school senior or junior or sophomore or whatever, and I was considering schools and I wanted to be a broadcaster, mm-hmm. wanted to be a sportscaster, I asked, okay, where did all these guys go to school? Yep. About nine out of every ten of them went to Syracuse. That's right. But one of them, Brent Musburger, who was huge at the time, this is like 1984, 83. You are looking live. Northwestern. So I said to my dad, we got to go look at Northwestern. He said, you're not getting into Northwestern. I said, yes, I am. <laughs> you're a Levy. We don't get into Northwestern. <laughs> so we Notre flew Dame's to, for rich kids. Flew. Great athletes. You're a Rudiger. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I love that line. <laughs> look, you can have a damn lot nice life as a Rudiger, but Notre Dame's for rich kids. People. Great athletes. He can't remember Rick Meyer <laughs> or yeah. Drew Bledsoe. I'll give you that whole movie but front to back. But that whole spiel he yeah, got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I went to Northwestern and I sat in Brent Musburger's chair, the local radio wow. station. Yeah, just disgusting stuff, just awful, awful mess at Northwestern surrounding yeah. all of their sports teams. So terrible. And I'll give you another messy one, which I don't really understand. I got a question for you on this: Have you heard of Minnesota Vikings first round pick Jordan Addison, the wide receiver? Name mean anything to you? No. Played it. I think played at Pittsburgh was crazy good. Then transferred to USC. And, oh, caught, yeah. and caught balls That's from the right. yeah. Heisman Trophy winner last yeah. year. Really terrific, electric wide receiver. He was a first-round draft choice. Cited for going 140 miles an hour in his brand-new Lamborghini Urus. Jeez. Wide receiver said Friday he used poor judgment. Sorry. <laughs> behind the wheel. Poor judgment. Quote, yesterday morning I made a mistake and used poor judgment. I recognize and own that. I'm going to learn from this and not repeat the behavior. I'm truly sorry. Now, we can laugh all we want, but this comes after like a year and a half. Remember the Henry Ruggs thing in Vegas? Oh, the Raider. Raider wide receiver killed somebody going 156 miles an hour. It's not funny. And Adrian Peterson, when he was with the Vikings or with somebody, maybe not the Vikings, he got pulled over for... So he was cited for going 100. Here's my question. He cited for going 140 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. wasn't even a... 70. It wasn't even yeah. a six. It was a 21 years old, the 23rd overall pick out of USC by the Vikings. He was cited by a trooper on Interstate 94 in Minneapolis or in Minnesota near Dale Street. And then he was cited and I guess released. That tells me that after it was all said and done, like you and I on I-90, he drove away. And I'm wondering how fast do you have to be going yeah. before it's probably not the greatest idea to just let you go drive home after you get the citation. So I always is heard. It, is it 200 miles an hour? Right, well. Is it 300 miles an hour? <laughs> at what point. What are you in a space shuttle? I mean, at what, what point does the officer say, young man, you need to either come with me. You need to have somebody come pick you up. You're not in the condition to be driving. I don't care whether you're stone cold sober. Going 140 miles an hour being cited. You should probably take the rest of the day off from behind the wheel. Yeah. At what point does that happen? I think every state is different. I heard okay. in the state we live in, if you're caught going twice the speed limit, you're right to jail, no questions asked. Oh. But this right. is Minnesota, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're a, probably a, a little looser. The story says he was issued a citation for speeding and reckless driving. That's amazing that he didn't go to jail. Yeah, I think in the state of Washington where we Sounds live. Sounds to me like he didn't go to jail. If you go double, you're going to jail. 
Double the speed limit. All right. When I saw 140, I'm like, what kind of car is he in? That was my first. All right, you see the cops in Las Vegas raided a he home. He bought the car with uh, Shadur Sanders NIL money. That's right. He lent them the money from uh, Colorado. NFL team should have a rule in the contract. We'll pay you all the money you want, but it's Toyota, Honda, <laughs> Nissan, or maybe not even Nissan. You know, let's see how fast you go in a forerunner there, buddy. Or in like a, you know, a Chevy Volt. No supercars on this team. That should be the rule because... Hand me 21, you know, that much money at 21 in a Lamborghini. God, you read the Henry Forget Rugg story. It. I know, it's awful. And I'm going like 30 in the on I-90 after I read the Henry after, Rugg I know, story. terrible. All right, well, cops in Las Vegas raided a home in connection with the Tupac Shakur murder case from 1996. I was there when it happened. You were there. I was in Vegas for a fight. I don't remember what fight it was. Yeah. But I think he got killed after the weekend a of a Tyson yeah. fight, and I was there, yes. So 27 years later... Yeah. They're raiding a house for, to, I guess, to see. Well, it's not oh. perfectly clear, but they think they might know who did it. Now, TMZ broke the story. The house is owned by Paula Clemens, who's married to a former crip named Keith D. Ah. For years, he claimed his nephew Orlando Anderson fired the fatal shots at Tupac Got just it. off the Vegas Strip in 96. So mm. kind of curious to see what goes. 27 years later, we're going to find out who killed Tupac. I guess we'll see. Jamie Foxx finally speaks through tears. Did you see his yeah. post? Did you watch to it? To hell and back, right? Yeah, I went through something that I thought I would never, ever go through. He said, I know a lot of people were waiting and wanting to hear updates, but to be honest with you, I just didn't want you to see me like that man. I wanted you to see me laughing, having a good time partying, cracking jokes, doing movies and television shows. I didn't want you to see me with tubes running out of me and trying to figure out if I was going to make it through. Now, he doesn't specify what happened, yeah. but he was very emotional, and you could tell by what he said and how he said it that it was touch and go for a while. Yeah, it did feel like it was touch and go for a while. Yeah, for just But it was kept we very airtight, and it still is. I, I still haven't seen any kind of guesses as to what happened. Yeah, to him. he's back on the set, though. Yes, he is. Back uh, working yeah. again. How about this one? A Michigan jury, you're going to like this one, decided Tuesday... <laughs> that a handwritten will found sandwiched between couch cushions in Aretha Franklin's home after her death in 2018 is valid. Wow. The soul music legend had left two wills behind, scrawled in notebooks and on pieces of paper. They were found in her Detroit home after her death from pancreatic cancer uh -huh. at 76. The Wills disagreed with which family members would control her estate, estimated at upwards of $100 million, Jeez. prompting turmoil of course. amongst the Aretha Franklin children. That's a lot of dough to split up. So a jury actually listened to this trial, and after deliberating for less than an hour, decided that the one that was written in 2014 and found in her couch cushions is the actual will that we're going to honor. Who would keep a family member from just <laughs> writing their own will? Oh, I found it on the couch, Coach, and this is probably the real one. Let's I'm go. Telling you. I'm telling you. That's unbelievable. Names Sabrina Owens, her niece, and her son, Kika Franklin, as co-executors of the estate. They win. Couch cushion will. That's amazing. Is the real will. I hope it's the real will. I hope you didn't is. just write that one up and take it <laughs> into court know. and say, this is it. You. Hey, by the way, I found the real one. Yeah, couch cushions. It happens, you know. All right, you see the oblivious fan seemingly trying to take a selfie, cause the, that massive crash at the Tour de France. 
I'm oh. aware of the story. I don't know that I saw it. Though. So they stuck their arm out to take a selfie, oh, no. and they clipped all. Oh, no. it took, they clipped one rider. Oh, it no. happened about 30 miles into the 15th oh, stage, and you know how that goes in those bike races. One guy goes down, another, but it's just domino effect. Yeah, like 15 different guys went down. It oh was no, awful. So. Pay attention. No one loves their phone more than me, but pay attention, people. I've got two stories of big-time, multi-million-dollar, billion-dollar winners. Or were they? Mm, Like lottery winners? Well, we just had the $1.08 billion Powerball. Down in L.A. Downtown L.A. Have you seen the video of the woman coming into the place where she bought the ticket and and, and just going freaking out that she won? Oh, my God. Praise the Lord. She was on people taking videos. Wow. Praise the Lord. I can't believe... She didn't win it. It was all a joke. Really? She went in there screaming and yelling. And the granddaughter of the person who owns the actual little mart Mm -hmm. that the ticket was sold in Los Palmitas, the Mm -hmm. mini market, says, I'm not sure why she did all that. I guess she just wanted to be on TV. She comes in. I've seen the video. She comes in. She like jumps around. Oh my God. Praise the Lord. She's on her, <laughs> she's on her back. She's, oh no. Her legs are going. It's like my mom when she thought she won the Florida lottery. Right, I told right. her that story. She's going crazy. Turns out she had nothing to do with the, with the winning. What? So weird. <laughs> and, then, and then this one. How about Jesus, a Las Vegas local? You're going to have the same question that I did. Okay. Good for Jesus. You know what he won? What? 10.4 million bucks. On a slot machine. Wow. He put $40 in a slot machine. Yeah. Pulled the crank. The one arm bandit. The one arm bandit. At 5.30 a.m. in the morning at the Cannery Casino and Hotel. I never even heard of it. Neither. He was so excited to win the life-changing jackpot that he planned, he said, the first thing he's going to do is buy his mother a house with the windfall of $10.4 million. Now, I do you play the slot machines? Never. I don't know that I've ever truly played a slot machine. Yeah, I mean, machine. I've walked by and thrown five bucks in, but yeah. I've never I don't even sat, know that I've done that. I've never sat there for so eight hours I have and two grinded questions. it out. I have yeah. two questions. A, and this is the easy one, since when do slot machines pay $10.4 million? Okay. But that aside, what kind of guy at 5.30 a.m. is putting in $40 a turn... <laughs> Per spin. <laughs> right, 5.30. In a slot machine. 40 bucks a spin? I thought was, he just spent 40 total. 40 bucks. Oh, my god. The gosh. spin cost 40 bucks. That, ne- that netted him $10.4 million. And my third question, sorry, I know I was only allowed two. Yes. My third question is, if he was putting in $40 a spin at 5.30 a.m. at the Cannery Casino and Hotel in Vegas... How much money has he put in before that? How, how much, much is Jesus? He's, he's negative eight point seven million. How much right is now? Jesus lost? <laughs> right up to that point, if he had five thirty in the no morning, kidding, man. as a local in Vegas, oh, putting in forty dollars in a spin. Yeah. Why do I think Jesus will be out of money in two and a half years? Why do I think that he's in there right now, spending yes. the ten point four million on yeah. after he buys the house? On uh, on oh. slot machines, he's going to put it right back. That's a hell of a lot of quarters that come out too for ten point seven million. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> you better get your remember the little cut little buckets you got to carry around like a dipshit. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad they got rid of the quarters, but yeah, forty bucks a spin is a pretty hefty. I mean, what does a spin last five seconds? I mean, a lot, a lot less time than a hand in blackjack. Yeah, no kidding. 
40 ah, bucks a spin. 40 bucks. How does that even work? Do you just throw in like hundreds and hundreds and I hundreds? I don't and... know. You put your credit card in. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. God, that's crazy. Yeah. All right. Toxicology report for Lisa Marie Presley findings yes. have been released. You, you see this or not? There were therapeutic levels of oxycodone in her blood. Yeah. A second op- opioid was found called buprenorphine, also known as Suboxone, oh, which yeah. is to treat opioid overuse. Opioids can cause constipation, which can lead to bowel obstruction, which Ugh. was the cause of her death. Oh. There were also traces of something else, an antipsychotic drug. So. And so while you're on that topic, a suspect has been arrested in connection with the death of Robert De Niro's grandson. Oh, good. Leandro De Niro Rodriguez is the grandson's name. You know that he passed away at the age of 19, I believe, of a drug overdose. Yeah. Here's the arrest. An alleged drug dealer known as the Percocet Princess has been arrested in connection to the overdose death of Robert De Niro's grandson, Sophia Haley Marks is her name, 20 years old, allegedly sold De Niro Rodriguez drugs before he was found dead in the financial district department on July 2nd. And with that, some RIPs? Yes. Before the RIP, though, Sophia Vergara single again. Yeah, I saw that. Let's yeah. go. It's about time. I, I got a shot now, what don't is I? Wrong with you? Her, her star's oh, coming God. down, and mine's going up, what and we're going to meet in the you? middle here. No? We're not? Okay, I'll move on. Uh, former LSU women's basketball star Danielle Ballard, who helped lead the Tigers to the Sweet 16 in 2014, was tragically killed on Thursday after she was struck by a car in Tennessee. Uh, she was considered one of the best female high school players in the nation, ranked number 25 overall by ESPN, 29 years old. So okay. rest in peace to her. How many more do you have? A uh, couple. I know you probably got a big one. You got a big one. <laughs> Excuse me? No. Oh, we're talking about RIP still? Uh, yes. Jesus. Uh, Tony Bennett. Yes, Alzheimer's, 96 years old. Yep. Legendary singer-songwriter of numerous classics. How many do you know? Can you name any of his? Well, I know the one that I need to know. Okay, go on. I left my heart in San Francisco. <laughs> That's the big one that I could think of, too. Yeah. But he had 70 albums. I mean, we should know more than one song, right? More than 50 million records worldwide, 20 Grammys, two Emmys. His wife on Instagram said, Tony left us today, but he was still singing the other day at his piano. His uh, last song that he sang before he passed away, Because of You, his first number one hit. Uh, so even in the throes wow. of Alzheimer's, he was sitting at the piano singing his first number one hit before he passed away. Complete legend. I always loved yeah. him and Lady Gaga's relationship at that the end. That was weird, yeah. A little weird. It is a little weird, but... Odd couple. Yeah, it's kind of cool how much respect she had for him, though. Yeah, yeah. I, thought, I always thought that was very sweet, and yeah. they actually toured together which I thought was pretty cool. I don't know that I knew that. So um, I got another one. Ohio State freshman receiver Carnell Tate's mother was tragically killed in a shooting, 40 years old. Law enforcement says the fatal incident happened around 2 a.m. in Chicago where a woman was shot multiple times in an alleged drive-by. Ugh, that sucks. And I have one more. I wouldn't know the name. You probably wouldn't know the name. Sam Cutler, the former tour manager known for his work with iconic bands such as the Rolling Stones and Grateful Dead wow. died on Tuesday, July 11th in Australia. He was 80 years old, a tour manager for the Rolling Stones. Probably had a couple Grateful stories Dead. to his name. I'm sure. Could have written a book. In Keith Richards' book, he talks about they actually brought a doctor with them yeah. on the tour because yeah. he, he could prescribe medical-grade cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Who the hell knew that was a thing, by the way? <laughs> so at the end of the Jeez. tour, the doctor had 
completely disappeared with like a 21-year-old groupie, <laughs> left his wife and kids, never to be seen again. I just remember thinking, just another body in the wake of the stones on tour, huh? Jesus, man. Anyway, all right. Uh, Shouldn't be laughing during RIPs. One more quick one. Jane Birkin. You know the name Birkin at all? No. Your wife? Does your wife Birkin. own a Birkin bag? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Well, you're lucky. Uh, How much do they cost? They're not cheap. Well, then I haven't bought one for her. She, well, <laughs> she may have bought it for herself. Oh. But she was a model and came to be widely seen as a fashion trendsetter. Um, she was the one that was responsible for the Birkin handbag that everyone seems to love, and gotcha. she was an actress. Gotcha. 76 yeah. years old. I could use some headlines. A mysterious package left outside of a florist in Mexico yeah. turned out to have a severed male genitalia in oh. it. Sadly for the receiver of the delivery, I think regifting is probably out of the question. An alleged fraud thief was arrested and found to have a live bullet hidden underneath his testicles in oh. prison. More great work from the police department's ballistics team. A 47-year-old woman spent two weeks on a nude cruise and claims that she now has a better sense of her body, body positivity and confidence. Hey, as my grandma used to say, sun's out, bun's out. She probably did say that. I don't know. <laughs> By the way, I'm not sure a nude cruise would do much for my... <laughs> bunch of guys with abs walking around with donkey schlongs. I don't think I need that for my oh self-confidence. Really? And finally, did a man... I that visual? <laughs> and finally, nice. a man was caught trying to smuggle a pair of scissors into prison up his bum. To the man's credit, his whole life, people have been telling him to cut the crap. Who was the number one pick in the 1993 <laughs> NFL Draft? Uh, Drewis Bledsoe. Who was the number two pick in the 1993 NFL Draft? Rick Meyer. The year that Manning and Leaf came out. Who was number one oh, who was number two? Let me think about that one. Peyton Manning. <coughs> was? Number one. And? Ryan Leaf was number two. Speaking of number two, we tried our best. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we really tried our best on yeah. episode two. We had a couple weeks off. We're a little rusty. Give a us a break. Rusty. We'll be better next time. We probably, probably won't. Probably not. No, I don't see that happening. But we're going to give it a go. That's right. We are going to give it a go. And to you, Frank and Fife, <laughs> go scrub. <laughs>